everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of SFD's series on Vietnam, Diop and Delatra. Or Delat. This one ran a little long, and you'll hear about it right before the end credits. We're into the swing of the French War now, and like I'll mention later in the episode, the perfect companion to this podcast, if you're a reading type of person, might be Bernard Fall's The Street Without Joy. His book will fill in some of the color that's missing from this cast, and this cast will fill in a lot of the straightforward chronology that's missing from his book. I don't want to be too optimistic because that's backfired on us in the past, but there is a chance, a small chance, that we might make it into the first days of the American War in Vietnam by the end of this summer. Not the out-and-out commitments under Johnson, but advisors in JFK, possibly. If I really hammer it before I ship off to Ann Arbor and law school, if anybody lives out that way, by the way, go ahead and get in touch and maybe we'll hang out some. People on Patreon, this is very much up to you, but a couple of notes for you. First is that between school supplies, flights, and everything else, money is tight this summer. So if you wanted to pump up your patronage for the last months of this show, I'm thinking of giving away the show outlines to whoever's over $10 on that site. And just as importantly, by the time August pays out, I will already be in Michigan, so if you're on Patreon, whether or not you want to increase what you're giving me there, July is the last month that you'll actually be supporting the show. So unless you're trying to pay it forward for whatever's left of SFD three years from then, remember to log on and cancel your subscription sometime in August. I know the value of five bucks, and I don't want to be taking that from anybody who didn't want to give it. Rate, review, subscribe to the show, tell your friends, come say hi on the internet. Share the posts of the show on Facebook. Do what you can to pump up our listenership right before the end. Firefly some people with it. All right, we're talking about the French War. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form Iraq's new government, that choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So, as is getting to be the going thing in these Vietnam shows, I want to cover a few topics that I either missed or weren't relevant or whatever here at the outset before jumping back into the stream of history proper. And the first couple to address are French military intelligence and jungle fighting. Before even that, though, just for our information as we get into this, it's really helpful for me to repeat it for myself. 
which is that a battalion is made up of several companies of anywhere between, and with the French manpower problems, really anywhere between 80 and 150 men, usually topping out at around 850 men. Regiments are the next higher organizational level. On the French side, they barely come into play, since the French rarely managed to concentrate that many troops in the same place at the same time for long. And on the Vietnamese side, a regiment, and we're going to talk about them a bit just geographically, weighed in at around 13,000 men. All right, so getting back to the things that we were getting back to before we get into the history show, the Indochina War presented the French with several problems, some of which they were familiar with, given their previous colonial pacification experiences, most of those in North Africa, and some of which were new. They had already come up against the problem of using highly mechanized, brutally powerful modern forces to put down guerrilla uprisings in those colonies in North Africa. But the lonely highland roads, the mist-shrouded forests, and the choking coastal jungles and swamps of Indochina threw up a whole host of new issues that had not been present in the past. The first was contact. It's indicative of how far I am from my military parents that I only started thinking about it when I was reading T.R. Fehrenbach's book on Korea, This Kind of War, last summer. Fehrenbach, in describing the American retreat towards the south in the face of the initial Korean onslaught, and then on the pell-mell route back to the parallel from the Yalu River once the Chinese joined the war, Fehrenbach castigated the UN forces over and over in his book for losing contact and their desire to get away from the communists. While the guys in a given squad or platoon or even company might be desperate to get away from the enemy forces, having each unit be in and be reporting on contact with those enemy forces is the only way that command structures could get an idea of the battle lines, where their troops were, where the enemy was, what the weak spots were, and as importantly, where the secure areas lay, so that lines of supply could be kept within them. In Korea, when our troops lost contact, commanders in an era without satellite intelligence were fighting an enemy that barely had radios to listen into, and which hid itself almost entirely from aerial surveillance, ended up totally in the dark. The two southward retreats in Korea ended up being so disastrous in part because troops broke contact, making it impossible to manage the battle on the UN or the American side. The French in Indochina faced a similarly difficult-to-track enemy. The Vietnamese wouldn't come into serious supplies of radios until later in the war, and wouldn't have excellent radio communications until more than a decade later, once they'd seized huge numbers from the Arvin and the Americans. If you want to imagine a war of nearly perfect contact, think of the Western Front in the Great War. Whether or not any fighting was actually going on at any given time, commanders on both sides knew exactly where the lines were and where, just by visual inspection, the enemy was moving his troops to. Indochina, for the French, was the opposite. It was practically only when fighting was going on that French commanders had any exact idea of where the Viet Minh had massed themselves. The maps of not just Vietnam, but of Laos and Cambodia too, were covered with vague notions of location and ghosts of units appearing first here, then there, ignoring the road networks entirely, making their movement, even when intelligence got a fix on a particular unit in a particular place at a particular time, totally unpredictable. The Viet Minh, on the other hand, by virtue of the relatively sedentary forces of the French, their contacts in the villages, and their scouts dispersed through their areas of operation, pretty much never broke contact with their opponents. For the French it was, as Bernard Fall said, quote, a war without fronts, and therefore without secure rear areas, unquote. Which was the other problem that the French never managed to solve in Indochina. 
For much of the war, they enjoyed armed and armored superiority, but without adequate ability to protect the routes that supplied those arms and armor, masses of men and machines became liabilities rather than advantages, a problem that the Viet Minh never had to deal with. From Folligan, quote, The appetites of armored vehicles mounting automatic weapons are gargantuan and insistent. The comparison between the supply of a squad mounted in a half-track and that of a squad trotting through the jungle, each man with a four-day ration of rice in a bag slung around his neck, would be ridiculous had it not proved so tragic." Unquote. And while the Americans had had some success in Korea defending their lines of supply from the air, quote, "...in contrast to the treeless spaces of Korea, Indochina is covered to the extent of 86% with dense spontaneous growth, and to the extent of at least 47% with outright jungle." Unquote making similar tactics in Vietnam for the French totally impossible. Now, Logeval notes, possibly with the benefit of time to review files that fall died too soon to either see or to read closely, that French military intelligence at the top wasn't actually all that bad. The French, by capturing and interrogating Viet Minh prisoners, and more rarely by taking maps or letters, actually had a fair idea, at least at high command in Saigon, what DRVN units were operating in what areas, at least generally, though those estimates became notably terrible before any of Jap's big offensives when he was shuffling those units around. The problem was that fair enough intelligence really made it down to battalion and company level on the French side in a timely fashion, meaning that they were often, quote, victims of the most brutal surprises in the form of road mines, ambushes, and grenade attacks, unquote. It is clear, said a French study published after the war, quote, that a distinction must be made here between the precise deep intelligence which was always available to the high command and the immediate and local intelligence that was almost never obtained by subordinate units. Thus it was written, it was the commander-in-chief who kept the battalion commander informed, while the latter was never able to reciprocate, unquote. The other thing I want to mention here was the poor state of security countrywide, or colony-wide, whatever you want to call it. We mentioned last show that the French had some success in clearing insurgents out of Saigon, and that they exercised a greater deal of control in Annam and Cochin China than in Tonkin in the north. All of that is true, but only in the sense that the Viet Minh operated with impunity in the north, and even parts of the Red River Delta from the beginning of the war. That is, it was a pretty low bar. They might not have been able to exercise territorial control south of Tonkin, but they could certainly keep up a constant, demoralizing, terrifying pressure on the French military and the colones in the lower two divisions of Vietnam, all of which was in keeping with Jap's strategy of wearing out the French public's will to fight. The long, long RC-1, Route Colonial 1, running from Haiphong and Hanoi in the north by the coast to Da Nang and Hue in the middle and Cameran Bay, Nha Trang, and Saigon in the south, was beset on nearly its entire length by daily guerrilla attacks, minings, and cuttings. Not even Saigon itself, not even after French measures to secure it last show, was really safe. From Logoval, quote, A Viet Minh attack could come from anywhere. Edmund Guillon of the U.S. Embassy recalled witnessing the assassination of the head of the French Charité in late April 1950. It was in the morning, but I hadn't come from my flat, and I just walked by the square and I saw Bazin, the Charité chief, just about to get in his car, and he was carrying this leather folder. And in front of him was another parked car with some Vietnamese in it. As he started to get into it, this other Vietnamese jumped out of the parked car right in front of him, holding an enormous revolver in both hands, the way they do in American movies now two-handed, and pumped shots into his belly. I was right across the street from him, a narrow street, and I ducked behind a barber's chair in the open. The assassin got in the car and drove away. The irony of it was that they were expecting some kind of ceremony, and there was a French squad rehearsing for it, 
and I remember seeing this fellow go right past them, and he was never found. Just prior to his death, Bazin told a French reporter, quote, Every day the Viet Minh radio says, Bazin, you are going to die. He said he hoped he would get them before they got him, unquote, and unquote. Almost done with this pre-section section here. Do you remember the sects that I mentioned way back, the Kaodai and the Hoahau? The first a spiritualist syncretic mix of Eastern and Western religion, venerating people as diverse as Christ, the Buddha, and Victor Hugo. The second a kind of radically egalitarian Buddhism. Well, very briefly here, the French began affording them greater autonomy, rather than the previous censure, allowing them to acquire weapons and exercise territorial control in the Mekong Delta. Because even if the French couldn't quite run those areas, neither would the Viet Minh, and the sects weren't actively attacking the French. They ran a similar strategy in the Red River Delta in the north, with the Vietnamese Catholics, whose prelates and bishops also controlled their territories like little caudillos, and who were, even better, pro-French. Finally, and really this is the last thing, and linking up with our interim show, George F. Kennan had already in the late 1940s articulated the fundamental problem with the war that the French were fighting, and the problem which would make it impossible for the Americans to win after them. Quote, We may defeat an enemy, but life goes on. The demands and aspirations of people, the compulsions that worked on them before they were defeated, begin to operate again after the defeat, unless you can do something to remove them. No victory can really be complete unless you eradicate the people against whom you are fighting, or change basically the whole compulsions under which they live. For that reason, I am suspicious of military force as a means of countering the political offensive we face from the communists today. Close on the heels of discussions of Far East strategy by Generals MacArthur and Bradley comes news that communist troops have invaded southern Korea. In swift response, President Truman has ordered United States Sea and Air Forces to give cover and support to the South Korean troops of President Sigmund Rhee, who is here being greeted by General MacArthur in Tokyo. United States action is explained as implementing the Security Council's resolution. In Seoul, not two years ago, the new Republic of South Korea was proclaimed. But political independence was the beginning instead of the end of trouble. From industrial northern Korea, agitators infiltrated to spread communism, ideas which only too easily took root among the 20 million inhabitants of southern Korea, most of them peasants. While the world wondered, communism marched again. To the Korean legation in London, the news was a stunning blow. Its significance is explained by the minister, Mr. Chi Chan Yun, recently arrived with his wife from Seoul. The terrible danger is that the conflict may flare up in a world conflagration. This is yet another test case. How will the rest of the world react to this unjust aggression? From Washington has come the first answer. With peace in the Pacific, her vital interest, America has said stop, and the prayers of the world go with her president. Okay, we're into the history now, so let's get back up to speed. We left off last show, well, except for that short one in the middle, last show in the fall of 1949, when the Chinese communist forces under Mao Zedong were closing in on victory over Chiang Kai-shek, who was shortly to flee to the island of Formosa, now Taiwan. I won't even try to give it all to you, but the French were in the midst of what they called the Valse de les Généraux, the Waltz of the Generals, with commanders-in-chief and their subordinates whirling in and out of Indochina. 
But not just the generals, it was the high commissioners and even more so the ministers sending them from metropolitan France. Half of my timeline entries are changes of government in Paris. What may be relevant to us is that at the moment Mao declared the People's Republic in October 1949, Leon Pignon was High Commissioner and General Marcel Carpentier was Commander-in-Chief, CNC. Mao recognized Ho's Democratic Republic of Vietnam, the DRVN, in early 1950, and Ho left the country for a conference in Beijing and a trip to Moscow, re-establishing his communist contacts after years of being cut off by Chiang's Kuomintang. Ho Chi Minh needed to secure war supplies from the Chinese, and the talks on that front went well, looking towards summer for completion. With Stalin, Ho needed to reassure the titular head of world communism that he was a revolutionary first and a nationalist second, exactly the opposite of what he'd been telling the United States, to keep the possibility of support open and secure that vital international recognition of his regime. He achieved both aims, despite Stalin's perpetual suspicions about Asian communism and its focus on the peasantry. Those were all victories, but the turn to the Chinese and the Soviets, even if Ho felt it necessary for his government's survival in the face of the French, was going to push away many of the non-communist elements present in the Viet Minh. It would likewise probably finally close the door on any possibility of cooperation with the United States and its allies in the region. And it might, even worse, provoke some kind of American intervention. Ho was well aware of those dangers, and as Logoval points out in his book, he was still extending the olive branch to the United States, or at least trying to, telling the American journalist Harold Isaacs that the idea of his government being dominated by either Moscow or Beijing was laughable, and that despite their recognition of his regime, Vietnamese independence would be won by the DRVN and not Chinese or Russian forces. Truman and Acheson, though, spooked by the Chinese victory and their recognition of the DRVN, finally bit the bullet, recognizing the French Baodai regime in Saigon by February 1950 and approving $23.5 million in aid explicitly for the war in May, which would be something like $240 million in today's dollars. Even at this stage, Truman and his Secretary of State were wary of being seen to support a colonial war, no matter its anti-communist aspects and they floated the idea of giving the aid to Bao Dai directly, rather than funneling it through the French High Commissioner. From Logoval, quote, To which the French replied, No, never, not a chance. General Marcel Carpentier, the new French commander in Vietnam, told the New York Times that if military equipment went directly to Bao Dai, quote, I would resign within 24 hours, unquote. The Vietnamese, quote, have no military organization which could effectively utilize the equipment. It would be wasted, as in China, and the United States has had enough of that, unquote, and unquote. The French's real play, though, was to say that they would resign the war entirely, which was indicative of the real nature of the war, not a fight against communism, but to retain their colony. If the U.S. started funding Bao Dai directly, well, it would be the U.S.'s colony rather than France's, and that was intolerable. So the cash and the weaponry went to Pignon and Carpentier, but all the same, Saigon began to fill up with the panoply of intervention which would eventually dominate it during the American War military attachés, the diplomatic corps, civilian advisors and economists, American politicians on junkets. The New Republic chalked it up thusly, quote, Southeast Asia is the center of the Cold War. Indochina is the center of Southeast Asia. America is late with a program to save Indochina, but we are on our way, unquote. That's more ominous in retrospect, huh? Something else to hold on to for when I finally finish the American War after law school in four years or so is that right around now, in 1950, Dean Rusk became Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, the desk under whose jurisdiction fell Vietnam. Dean Rusk. Remember that name. 
Now, despite American promises of aid, which began to arrive later in the year, the war was not going well for the French at this point. Jap spent 1950 before the summer monsoon season, launching a series of offensives that made the, quote, whole vast northeastern corner of Tonkin a Viet Minh stronghold, except for an attenuated string of border posts stretching more than 160 miles south from Kaobang, Vietongke, Thatke, and ill-fated Lang Son, along a single-lane highway known as Colonial Road 4, unquote, says Bernard Paul. The French hadn't quite given up the war for lost yet, politically or militarily, but their war effort was getting to be more and more extended over the country and less and less focused on aggressive action. They had lost the initiative, responding to Japs' more nimble movements rather than making those of their own. Every month, high command in Saigon found itself pinning down more men and more ordnance to hold roads and rivers that were bare miles away from, or even within, supposedly secure areas. Hakiman began erecting watchtowers kilometer by kilometer along all the roads and paddy dikes of Anam and Cochin, China, manned by lonely teams of militiamen who were lucky to be ignored by nocturnal squads of Viet Minh. The Quiet American, a novel by Graham Greene about a British journalist and an American spy in Vietnam in the 1950s, has a scene about one of these watchtowers. It's a pretty good book, and they made a pretty good movie about it with Michael Caine, and the clip of the tower is on YouTube, so I'm going to have that linked in the show notes, because I think it gives like a pretty, well, who knows about accurate, but I think for feel, a pretty accurate representation of what it would have been like to be in one of those towers at night. So uh, check that out. Some of the French, however, were already pessimistic about the possibilities of victory. General Georges Rivers, which is spelled like Revers, reverse, which means in French what it means in English, it was kind of like an ironic uh, thing. The French army chief of staff headed to Indochina around this time and made a report about it. Logoval says that he drew, quote, sobering conclusions. No military solution favoring France was possible, he argued, not in the long run. All actions must proceed from this basis, and ultimately Paris leaders would need to seek a, quote, peace of the brave, unquote, with Ho Chi Minh's Democratic Republic of Vietnam. This is still within the longer uh, Logoval quote. Bao Dai was a poor leader whose government had minimal support, and France did not have enough manpower in Indochina to impose her will on the population. Since the Viet Minh were bound, sooner or later, to gain significant assistance from the Chinese communists, France could not realistically hope to hold the whole of Tonkin, at least not without the introduction of American ground forces. Instead, she should withdraw from all of Tonkin, except a rough quadrilateral around the Red River Delta anchored on Haiphong, Hoabin, Viet Tri, Tainuan, and Mong Kai. The fortresses on the Chinese frontier along Route Colonial 4, already suffering from the relentless attacks on the convoys, would become indefensible if the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, that's the Chinese army, reached the border and decided to aid the Viet Minh. They were, moreover, strategically unimportant and were tying down troops badly needed in the Red River Delta, unquote. Now, despite all this doom and gloom and actually losing the war, there was a paradoxical bright spot for the French, at least for now, which was the outbreak of the Korean War in the summer of 1950. I'll get to a very, very brief summary of that war later in the episode, but for the French, what it meant was more and more concerted American aid. It now seemed to Washington, or it was convenient to seem to Washington at that time, that they were not just rhetorically, but in fact fighting the same battle as the French. There was a monolithic, homogenous Asian communism that stretched from the front line in Korea in the north to Tonkin in the south. And by the second day of the Korean War, June 25th, Truman ordered the increase and acceleration of American aid, with the first eight C-47s laden with arms landing in Saigon five days later, representing the first $10 million of the eventual $1 billion in change that the United States would afford for the war in the next four years. As Logoval writes, quote, 
By early August, military supplies sufficient to equip 12 infantry battalions were en route by ship to Vietnam to oversee the delivery of this expanded American assistance and to, quote, evaluate French tactical efficiency in the use of U.S. equipment, unquote, the administration created the Military Assistance Advisory Group, MAG, whose first contingent of officers and enlisted men arrived in Saigon in September, and the Special Mission for Technical and Economic Assistance, STEM, which began its work the same month. Significantly, the French ruled out any kind of training role for MAG and made clear that they would allow no American interference in the conduct of the war, unquote. The Chinese counterpart to the MAG, the Chinese Military Advisory Group, CMAG, came into being right at the same time, and it began funneling arms and trainers to the Vietnamese as well, though always fewer and less than the U.S. to France. As Bernard Fall writes, quote, The arrival of the Chinese communists on the border of North Vietnam closed the first chapter of the Indochina War and doomed all French chances of full victory. From then on, the Viet Minh possessed, like the Reds in Korea, a, quote, sanctuary, unquote, where they could refit and retrain their troops with full impunity in the Chinese communist training camps at Nam Ning and the artillery firing ranges of Cheng Si. Soon, Viet Minh battalions began to appear in full field formations, equipped with heavy mortars and pack howitzers, followed shortly thereafter by complete artillery battalions using American-made recoilless rifles and 105mm howitzers, unquote. And with that, Bernard Fall's pessimistic summation of the French position and their chances in Indochina, we are now into the full swing of things. In the Far East, France continues her pressure against Red Viet Minh elements, as border news indicates that Indochina may be next on the list for invasion. A strong French force lands in a province left alone by France since 1947. In this wild country, small groups of rebels can build strong points to link with invaders from the north, where armies of Red China are reported. As they penetrate the jungle, the force runs into an ambush. are surrounded and captured one by one in their foxholes. The ceaseless war France carries on in Indochina is every bit as tough as our problem in Malaya and just as vital in the struggle against communism in the Far East. They may look a feeble enemy, but we've learned different in Korea. With their capture, one more trouble spot is destroyed. Our problem in Malaya could become doubly tough where France to relax her watch. General Vo Nguyen Giap, head of the DRVN's armed forces, was at this point beginning to contemplate moving to a fuller opening of hostilities with the French. He was eyeballing that last little string of French redoubts in his northern territory, the forts along the RC4, for a fall offensive, and he chose the last days of spring, before the monsoon rains, to make a trial run. In the morning of May 25, 1950, small arms and artillery fire rained down on the mostly Moroccan garrison at Dong Ke, just south of Kaobang on the Chinese border, a position that secured supplies to the more important fortress in the north. Jap had, in a fashion that would soon become disastrously familiar to the French, managed to sneak thousands of soldiers and four American-made 75mm cannons into the hills above Dong Ke, using hundreds of men, rope and sweat, to haul the ton-plus guns up the jungle slopes. Artillery and mortar shells carpeted the post for two days before the Viet Minh soldiery, in the French term, submerged the post under attack after attack. 
A quick drop of paratroopers managed to counterattack and retake the post, and Jap, with the rains approaching, called things off. The French took the summer to pat themselves on the back for their victory. Jap, on the other hand, weighing the isolation of the RC4 and his ability to attack not just one post at a time, but all of them, decided that time had come to leave the second phase of Revolutionary War, a mix of sporadic regular and guerrilla attacks, and move on to the third phase, the General Offensive. By that time in 1950, the Viet Minh were looking at around 250,000 troops in the regular army, the regional units, and the guerrilla militia forces. The regular army weighed in at around 120,000 men in six divisions. The first were in Tonkin, and the last was in central Anan. Each one was comprised of three infantry regiments, an artillery battalion, an anti-aircraft battalion, along with the staff and support. Now, this is all a little bit esoteric, but those last two battalions were important. Since Mao's victory in 1949, and soon to ramp up, the Chinese had been delivering anti-aircraft guns and heavier artillery to the DRVN, meaning that at certain points, when Jap concentrated his forces, he might actually be able to outgun the French and ward off their air support. Only in the sense that while the French were continually spreading themselves thinner and thinner, the Vietnamese had the luxury of choosing their points of attack and massing their forces at those points. It was a problem that the French would never solve, though they gave it a go with the Airland Base and the Delatra Line, things that we'll encounter later in this show, and that the Americans had no more luck in cracking, even with all the benefits of hindsight. Without the benefit of roads and heavy trucks, though, keeping the DRVN troops in the field was a planner's nightmare, and in Jap's case ended up being a logistical miracle. Each of those six divisions required 50,000 locally recruited porters, hauling 45 pounds on their backs, five times that on pushed bicycles in the dry season. Each porter carried his own food, enough for the seven days he was allowed, under Viet Minh regulations, to carry, enough to then track back to his village. This massive system of supply had to move with the army, conscripting from villages as it crawled over the hills and through the valleys of Vietnam. The regular forces, moreover, worked in symbiosis with the regional militias and the villages. Communist cadres organized and communicated in their communities, doing recruitment and supply work. The regional militias worked as a reserve of troops for the regular units, and the regulars, while they weren't fighting, trained the militias in turn. Off to the side of all this were the so-called elite irregulars, permanent guerrillas who operated out of the villages, sabotaging roads, surveilling the French, and joining the regular troops in large battles. And all of this operated mostly by word of mouth and on written pieces of paper, assisted in rare cases by radio contact and telegraph lines. French forces likewise totaled around 250,000, and like the Vietnamese, a much smaller proportion, only about two-fifths, were actual regulars. The rest were unreliable Vietnamese militia forces, mercenaries, and a handful of troops from Laos and Cambodia. As Logoval writes, quote, On the support side, French women were a growing presence, as part of the PFAT, the French acronym for Feminine Personnel of the Land Army. Many were secretaries, but sizable numbers also served in combat areas as ambulance drivers, nurses, surgeons, and helicopter pilots. Among the latter were several women who flew into high-danger battle situations to evacuate wounded soldiers and provide vital first aid. One pilot by war's end had logged some 4,000 hours in Indochina and conducted more than 30 missions to rescue wounded soldiers from combat zones. Still other women worked as parachute riggers for the airborne units. Before the war was over, more than 100 PFAT members would be killed in action." Unquote. About 53,000 troops total were on hand in Tonkin for use by the French CNC Carpentier. In reality, nearly all of them were heavily engaged in defensive or garrison duties around the Delta, including the entire mobile reserve. Paris was beginning to hear, likewise, of a certain defensive-mindedness among the senior staff, along with despair over the 25,000 dead out of 100,000 casualties so far reported in the war. 
It was a set of facts that were not encouraging for the French, or for us now, observing from the future their chances of defending the RC4 going into the monsoon season. About that monsoon, too, Jap and his six battalions and his irregulars spent the summer practicing for the fall offensive, as Logoval says, quote, even going so far as to construct elaborate models of the French posts of Thap K, Dong K, and Khao Bang, which their troops then practiced taking, day after day after day. They sabotaged roads and bridges, hoping to slow the advance of French motorized forces coming to the rescue, unquote. As for the French, as historian Bodard wrote in his book Quicksand War, quote, the soldiers were overwhelmed and blinded by the forces of nature, by the soaking vegetation, the mountains that vanished in the clouds, the rivers swirling with turbid, dangerously rapid water, by the mud, the heat, by everything. It was a formless, green-gray world, devoid of outline, inimical, a world in which every movement, even eating, was an effort." Unquote. The French just hunkered down for the monsoon. The Vietnamese trained, and the Chinese began their increased deliveries of supplies. 14,000 small arms, 1,700 machine guns, 150 artillery pieces, 2,800 tons of grain to make up for the rice that the DRVN wasn't receiving from the deltas, ammunition, uniforms, medicine, and a few precious radios, delivered by thousands of porters and 200 heavy Soviet trucks over the Chinese border. As Lugaval says, quote, If the amounts in these truck beds still did not come close to matching what Washington gave to the French Union, by early 1951, the French would receive some 7,200 tons of military equipment per month on average. It nevertheless had a highly significant impact, unquote. As the fall and the end of the rains approached, things looked ominous, not least because French intelligence had picked up signs of an offensive along the frontier in September. Meanwhile, the government in Paris had decided to reduce French troop numbers for the coming year by 9,000 men. But as Lugaval points out, not everything was going against the French. While Jap had run roughshod over the north in the first part of the year, a French pacification effort in the deltas had cut the Viet Minh's rice supplies in half. Quote, This was a severe problem for the DRV, not merely in nutritional terms, but also because rice was the medium of exchange in the Viet Minh economy. Troops were paid in rice. Services and supplies were purchased with rice. Through the middle months of the year, rice rations for Jap's forces were cut again and again, unquote. What's more, massive investments of air power and artillery had calmed the South, and except for occasional guerrilla attacks, the fighting mostly left Cochin China and kept to Tonkin and the enemy's highlands for the rest of the war. The interesting thing here, though, is this disconnect again between ends and means, between politics and war. If the French were really gunning for a political solution at this point, given that their best commanders were thinking that a real military victory was now impossible, then they ought to have withdrawn to the deltas, totally clamped down on rice supplies, and to have worked for a parlay. If they were, by contrast, for example, flailing around without any real plan, they might try to defend a long line of lonely forts at the Chinese frontier. Carpentier was apparently beginning to think along these lines, at least in terms of the indefensibility of the northern forts, because at the end of the summer he ordered his staff to draw up plans for the evacuation of Khao Bang and the capture of Tai Nguyen, part of the Viet Minh's age-old base area north of Hanoi, as a distraction, by the middle of October. This was all too late, though, since Jap had already decided to destroy the line of forts by the end of September. Jap's first blow fell at Dong Kei on the 16th of that month, the same fort that he'd attacked in the spring, with the same tactics, this time protected against any incoming paratroopers or planes by the Krachin, the French name for Vietnam's thick mountain fog. The post's defenders collapsed in two days, and just one officer and 31 men of the two companies of foreign legionnaires staggered out of the jungle and into the fort at Thad Kei a week afterwards. Then suddenly there was no peace. 
On June the 25th, North Korea attacked across the 38th parallel. As South Korean forces moved up to stem the invasion, the world saw the challenge. Communism was on the march, and before its well-armed blow, the defenders fell back. South Korea was in flames, her people bewildered by the peril that suddenly threatened their simple, hard lives. As the nearest United Nations forces, American troops were rushed from Japan to buy time with their lives, whilst the other nations organized. But before the advancing red might, they too had to fall back, outnumbered, outgunned. Beyond endurance, they fought and bled for an ideal in a strange land, waiting for help to come along a long, lonely road. At late success, Russia came back to the council. As president, for a month, Malik delayed the support Warren Austin asked for America. But for her boycott of UNO, Russia could have vetoed action in the first place. Through Sir Gladwin Jeb, Britain gave full support. But from Russia's action, crisis sprang. In London, Churchill urged the Prime Minister to speed the recall of Parliament and look to our defences. Danger loomed in the West, but we found ships and men to send to Korea from Britain and the China Station. From California, giant carriers rushed planes and supplies across the Pacific as America marshaled her vast resources and under the flag of the United Nations, their commander, General MacArthur, built line after line, trying to stem the retreat as his forces fell back to the Naktong River, even to the gates of Pusan itself, the last line. Without Dong Ke, the main and northernmost French garrison along the border and route coloniale number four, Kaobang was cut off entirely from the road. The French high command, recognizing how untenable this situation was, ordered the commander at Kaobang to blow up his trucks and heavy equipment and march out of the fort south along the RC4. Another force was to move up from That Ke along the same road, retake Dong Ke, and wait for the garrison from Kaobang to arrive. The leader of that southern force, Lieutenant General Marcel Lepage, headed out on the 30th, and various sources have reported that the general was rumored to have said, leaving the safety of That K, that, quote, we shall never come back, unquote. From Bernard Fall's book, Two Vietnams, quote, On October 3rd, the Kaobang force began its 85-mile trek southward, but with its artillery and trucks. Its commander, not recognizing the extent of the threat hanging over his head, had decided, against orders, to save his equipment along with his men. He was to lose both in short order and engulf the whole borderline in its own catastrophe. RC4 winds for long stretches between high, jungle-covered limestone cliffs and over flimsy bridges. Had the Kaobang force operated according to orders, it could have chosen footpaths rather than using the main road, which was well covered by enemy troops, and in any case, it could have bypassed most bridges. But with its trucks and cannon, it was road-bound and ran almost immediately into a succession of ambushes and blown-up bridges. After one day of arduous work, the force had covered nine miles. Moving entirely on foot, it could beyond a doubt have covered at least twice as much ground, and in the meantime, the LePage task force, outnumbered three to one, was bitterly holding its stretch of road, waiting for the Kaobang column, unquote. The commander of the Kaobang garrison finally decided that his orders had been right, and he burned his trucks and artillery on the road, moving off of it and looking to rendezvous with the Kaobang force at a particular hill in the jungle. Both columns of exhausted Frenchmen and colonials now began hacking their way through the brush, up and down hillsides. 
running on nearly a week of constant movement and battle and very little sleep. The Vietnamese, hardly less tired than their French opponents, kept up the pursuit. Quote, why do we need to rest now, unquote, Ho Chi Minh said to his commanders. Quote, we are tired, but the enemy is ten times more so. A runner on the point of reaching his finishing line cannot rest, unquote. Jap gave a similar message to the troops by telegraph on the 6th of October. Quote, I am sure that the enemy is hungrier and colder than you. He has suffered heavier losses and his morale has been undermined, as he is a defeated invader's army. Therefore, you must put more effort into your work in order to annihilate most of the enemy troops. Rain and foggy weather is all the more favorable to us. Forward, unquote. The two French forces linked up on the 7th of October, having taken massive casualties from days of ambushes and skirmishes, and they were running low on water, food, and ammunition. Even worse, they were now outnumbered more than 8 to 1, surrounded by the 15 Viet Minh battalions that had, combined, been assigned to waylay both columns. As Fall writes in that same book, quote, The remnants of the two forces met in the hills around Dong Khe just long enough to die together on October 7th, in spite of last-minute gopher-broke parachute drops of three battalions, whose commitment increased the long list of French casualties without in any way changing the outcome of the battle, unquote. Only 600 men made it out of the pocket, evading the Viet Minh and returning to French-held areas. As Fall wrote in his other book on the war, Street Without Joy, quote, When the smoke cleared, the French had suffered their greatest colonial defeat since Montcalm had died at Quebec. They had lost 6,000 troops, 13 artillery pieces, and 125 mortars, 450 trucks and three armored platoons, 940 machine guns, 1,200 submachine guns, and more than 8,000 rifles. Their abandoned stocks alone sufficed for the equipment of the whole additional Viet Minh division, unquote. General Jap got drunk for literally the first time in his entire life to celebrate along with his Chinese CMAG advisors. But neither he nor Ho Chi Minh were unaware of the costs to their own forces that the operation had borne. Though the French would not find out until long afterwards, Viet Minh casualties had been even higher than the French, losing as many as 9,000 men killed before taking the wounded into account. As Logoval writes, quote, because of the rough terrain and distances, porters could evacuate only about 6% of the wounded to hospitals within 6 hours. The rest arrived only later, some of them as late as 12 or 18 hours after going down. Even then, their ordeal was far from over, as they typically had to endure excruciating waits to go into surgery. Many never made it to the operating table. Nor had the DRV's medical services factored in that they would need to also take care of hundreds of wounded European, African, and North African troops captured in the battle. Many of these soldiers also succumbed, whether from inadequate treatment of their injuries or from illness contracted in the malaria-infested jungles of Khao Bang, unquote. I'm giving so much time to this border offensive because it's emblematic of virtually all of the fighting for the rest of the war, even those battles, which we'll get to, that Jap did not end up winning. The French, spread thin, were unable to devote the men, the artillery, or the airplanes needed to defend any one point adequately. Jap, even if the French more or less knew where most of his troops more or less were, could time and again concentrate huge numbers in a small area quickly without detection, meaning that in that place, for just a little while, he could outgun and outnumber the in general better armed and better trained French forces. Likewise, Vietnamese casualties, even in near total victories like Dong Khe, were always higher than those of the French. Their logistical difficulties were greater, the supplies they received from abroad fewer, the only way that the DRVN could achieve, and what's more, survive to continue fighting after incredibly costly victories like Dong Khe, was to hold the dedicated ongoing support of the villages of an entire region. 
Not just their active participation in the army, the militia, and the court of porters, but their willingness to a man to deny vital information to the French. We'll get a little more into it later, but this kind of loyalty cannot be imposed. It can only be earned. The French moved from relative confidence after their pacification of the deltas in the spring to relative panic after the rout at Donquay. The monumental nature of the defeat led the French to abandon their other border forts much more hastily, leaving large stockpiles of supplies to the Viet Minh. They pulled back to a 375-mile cordon around the Red River Delta, and the civilian colonial population became increasingly nervous, enough so that the colonial authorities made quiet plans to evacuate French women and children from Tonkin, commandeering a cruise ship for the purpose. At this point in the war, regal victory began to look less and less possible to any serious French observer. As long as the far-flung French forts still existed, little as their apparent value might have been, the French had a view of themselves as being in territorial control of the whole country. Now with the entire Viet Bac region surrendered to the Viet Minh, and with supplies coming over the border in masse, French commanders were at a loss, not just of what to do next, but also of what, if anything, could be done to attack the Viet Minh at all. Neither metropolitan France nor the world situation were cooperating either. As the battle on the border was ongoing, Mao joined the Korean War against the United States, beginning the pushback from the Yalu River that would eventually stalemate that war, and increasing the Chinese premier's resolve in aiding the Vietnamese. In France, while every government ended up with the MRP, the pro-war center-right Catholic party, in the middle, every new round of political turmoil featured stronger anti-war voices. Pierre Mendes France, leader of the center-left radical party, the same party as Boyart, the former high commissioner, began condemning the war as futile. Quote, it is the entire conception of our action in Indochina that is false, for it is based on a military effort that is insufficient to bring about a solution by force and on a policy that is incapable of assuring us the support of the people. Things cannot continue like this. There are only two solutions. The first consists in realizing our objectives in Indochina by means of military force. If we choose that, let us at least avoid illusions and pious lies. To achieve decisive military successes rapidly, we need three times as many troops in the field and a tripling of appropriations, and we need them very quickly. The military solution is a massive new effort, sufficiently massive and sufficiently rapid to anticipate the already considerable development of the forces opposed to us." Mendes France's second solution, of course, was to do what the socialists, the radicals, and the communists had been calling for, though not always and not always strongly enough, all along. Negotiate and end the war immediately. This, these objections that Pierre Mendes France has, they get at something that we'll have to emphasize in this war and the next. It's the natural step beyond what we've already mentioned vis-a-vis -vis ends and means and war and politics. Namely, that if you're going to go ahead and do something militarily, you should ensure from the very beginning that you're willing to put together the force necessary to assure the conclusion you're looking for, and even better, on as short a timetable as possible. If at any moment you begin to think that you may never have the resources to bring about a conclusive end to the violence on a short timescale, then you've just got to stop and re-strategize. Otherwise, you're killing people for no reason, towards no conceivable end. As Lugoval writes, though, Pierre Mendes France's plea, quote, fell on deaf ears in the corridors of power. Disengagement short of victory would insult the memory of the Frenchman who had died defending the cause, top civilian and military leaders insisted, a stock argument that they would use time and again in the months to come, as would, beginning in the mid-1960s, their American successors. It would simply be necessary to try harder, to perform better, and to do so under new French leadership in Hanoi, unquote. 
That fall, the French also gave in to a long-standing American request, which was the creation of a Vietnamese national army. The Cao Bang disaster had made it even more clear to the French administration and general staff that the simple need for more bodies, bodies that could not come from France and would not come from the colonies, would necessitate the conscription of Vietnamese soldiers not into militias, but a real and regular army. The French opened a military academy designed to turn out 150 Vietnamese officers per year and announced plans to form four fully or almost fully Vietnamese divisions by the end of 1951, including both recruits and Viet members of French regular units at the time. These months, and the border offensive in particular, were important for one other reason. The entire Northern Highlands were in DRVN hands by January 1951. And now, having faced his opponents in open battle and won, Jap was willing to turn his eyes to the Red River Delta to look at fighting the French on their own terms. The news magazine of the screen. Glimpses of history in the making. Presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company. Combat films show French Union forces fighting desperately against an ambush sprung by the communist-led Viet Minh rebels in Indochina. Communist artillery hammers the ambushed battalion. Suddenly French planes sweep overhead to sear the red guerrillas with flaming napalm. The Viet Minh rebels in their jungle fortress, French air power scores a victory in Indochina's hot war. Logaval records a story that I haven't seen anywhere else, and it's that of one young French lieutenant named Bernard Delatre de Tassine, 23 years old in the fall of 1950, with a year under his belt in Indochina. At 15, he'd helped his military father escape from a Vichy prison, joined the Free French, became the youngest soldier to have ever received the Médaille Militaire, and fought and been wounded fighting the Germans in 1944. Delatre received special attention in Indochina because he seemed to be the only young officer with an idea of how to win the war politically, which was not hunkering in pillboxes and forts, but mixing with the population and winning the people away from the Viet Minh by social outreach, improved sanitation, building infrastructure, and projects of that nature. This phrase comes right from Logoval, so I don't know if it's paraphrased from a letter or wherever else, but, quote, If killing had to be done, and the young lieutenant didn't doubt it, it should be done as quietly as possible, with a knife or rifle, not with heavy artillery or aerial bombardment, unquote. It's the kind of thing that was nearly absent from the French effort, and which lived only among some of the Marine and Special Forces operations when the United States got into the war. After Calbang, Delatre's optimism waned. He was sick of the fear psychosis suffered by his fellow officers and the boozy off-duty hours of some others, and most of all by the directionless nature of French leadership, received on high from faraway Saigon. The young Delatre wrote to his mother on October 23rd, as the northern forts were collapsing, to, quote, "...tell father we need him, for without him it will go wrong," unquote. 
When the Metropolitan Government did decide to send out that man, General Jean de Lattre de Tassin, to take over for both Pignon as High Commissioner and Carpentier as Commander-in-Chief in December, consolidating all French power in Indochina in one person, the son wrote to the father, quote, What we need is a leader who leads, fresh blood and new machinery, and no more niggling, no more small-time warfare. And then, with the morale that we still have in spite of it all, we could save everything, unquote. The general's early life was as impressive as the lieutenant's. He was injured five times in the trenches during the Great War, wounded in a German cavalry charge by lance to the chest. He killed his attacker and one other with a sword and escaped to safety. He served in Morocco between the wars, fought in the Battle of France, was jailed by Vichy for continuing that fight, escaped with his son Bernard's help, joined the Free French, and commanded 125,000 American troops in the battle to retake his country. Not knowing, perhaps, about the urging of his son, his acceptance of the Indochina post surprised some observers, given that it was a step down from his post-war position. I have nothing to gain and doubtless much to lose, Delatra replied when Prime Minister René Plevin asked him to take up the post. All the more reason for accepting, and as a good soldier, I shall do so without hesitation. From Falls to Vietnam's, quote, Jean de Lattre de Tessin was appointed on December 17, 1950, Commander-in-Chief and Civilian High Commissioner in Indochina, presumably to preside over its demise. But de Lattre was not the kind of man to accept retreats lightly. Known as Le Roy Jean, King John, in the French army because he always insisted upon regal elegance among his staff officers and a military ceremonial recalling the more civilized days of the 18th century, he was, at the same time, a shrewd and demanding commander. In brief, what changed with Delatra's arrival in Indochina was the tone, and at that juncture, that was a vital element. In his first address, he promised little. No improvements, no reinforcements, no easy victories. But he made one promise he kept to his dying day. No matter what, you will be commanded. And to troops who had sorely lacked the knowledge of a clearly explained mission, this was all important. Delatra fired the area commander of Hanoi five minutes after landing there because the honor guard was not turned out the way he felt it should be. He also insisted that French women's army corps detachments turn out for parades just as male units did. And it was Delatre who invented the impressive paratroop parades in full battle gear, camouflage uniform with rolled up jacket sleeves, and all portable weapons, including mortars and recoilless rifles. It was Delatre who sent the Pasteur Institutes back to France, empty except for the wounded soldiers, to the outcries of Parliament, who drafted French civilians in Indochina for guard duties, who requisitioned all civilian aircraft as they landed, unaware in Saigon, and used them to airlift reinforcements. Finally, it was also Delatre who had the guts to meet head-on the problem of how to get the non-communist Vietnamese to fight for their own country. He began to create holy Vietnamese units commanded by Vietnamese officers, and bluntly told a class of fastidious Vietnamese high school graduates, of the type that were always willing to tell American reporters how they hated the French, provided they could spend the next four years at the University of Paris, to act, quote, like men. If you are communists, then go and join the Viet Minh. There are people there who fight well for a bad cause, unquote. It is unlikely that the Indochina War could have been won by the French, but there is no doubt that Delatre would have been able to put a stop to the war on the day he saw that it had become hopeless, as de Gaulle was the man who had the prestige to stop the Algerian War later on, unquote. Delatre followed his predecessors as CNC by selling the conflict in the press and to the Americans as essentially an ideological one, deeply connected to the greater Cold War and the political future of Southeast Asia. Whether he actually believed any of that, Logoval writes, is hard to determine, but virtually nobody in France saw any of these questions as simply or in as black and white a manner as the Americans did. 
Delatra arrived in Vietnam, in Saigon, on December 19th, fully four years to the day since the outbreak of the war in Hanoi. Quoting Edmund Guyon from Logoval's book, quote, His plane came in and Delatra stood at the top of a flight of stairs, on the platform, the gangplank, and he turned his profile this way. He had a magnificent profile, something like MacArthur, and watching him arrive, he seemed seven foot tall, stiff and straight, and he took white gloves and he pulled them carefully on his hands, like that, a very symbolic gesture, symbolizing in the honor of the Corps that the gentleman aristocrat was in office. But the symbolism of pulling on the gloves was lost on no one. He was coming down to clean up this mess, unquote. Delatra not only canceled the evacuation of women and children from Hanoi, using the liner detailed for them to ship the wounded home, as Fall writes, he announced he'd be bringing his own wife to town. He likewise announced very publicly and very firmly that any thought of abandoning Tonkin ended with him. In his first days in theater operating pointedly out of Hanoi rather than Saigon, Delatra flew all over the country in a tiny Moraine monoplane, setting a pace of work that exhausted his much younger staffers and aides. From Logoval, quote, Everywhere he touched dormant cords of national pride and brought forth cheers from the assembled French troops. Everywhere he ruthlessly weeded out the incompetent and the, by his standards, lackadaisical. His mantra at each stop, there will be no quitting Indochina. Korea come pictures of the first offensive action by helicopters as giant Sikorskis fly in to land an entire marine unit to capture a section of the famous Heartbreak Ridge. With the ridge driven from the summit by heavy barrage, helicopters cut out the long uphill fight to the top by leapfrogging troops behind the enemy. It's a non-stop round-trip schedule for the Sikorskis. After the men are safely landed in force and the position secured, the helicopters fly in supplies, including hand grenades, which can be put down as gently as crates of eggs. And so the hilltop objective is captured without loss. General Delatre did more than bolster low morale, though. He reorganized the French strategy and tactics in Indochina. He put together the Group Mont Mobile, the mobile groups, along the lines that he'd fought in Africa in the 20s, emphasizing rapid mechanized forces. These were large agglomerations of tanks, mechanized infantry, and mobile artillery, comprising around 3,000 men, collected in an unorthodox way under unified commands, able to race up and down the narrow colonial roads, outrunning Viet Minh intelligence, and able to secure their own flanks, build their own bridges, and fight their own way out of waiting ambushes, encircling enemy strongpoints from two or three directions at once. Fall's book, Street Without Joy, is tough to use as a war history, because it's much more concerned with capturing the feel of what was going on than the chronology of what was going on, from the romance of the French effort to the misery of the fighting to the exceptional bravery and fortitude of the Viet Minh. He has a long passage on the mobile groups and their commanders that I'm going to rely on and quote from directly here. He writes that the leaders of the GMs, that is the group Mons Mobiles, the mobile groups, that their assignment, compared to the officers tied down to forts and bunkers and the rest of the country, gave them an air that was all their own. Quote, Constantly on the go save for short rest periods, their life resembled more that of ship's commanders in a period of cruiser warfare, and one could almost speak of a GM putting into port when he was stationed around Hanoi or Haiphong, Hub or Bien Hoa for refitting. And each commander after a while had become identified with his GM much the same as a captain is with his ship or a feudal lord with his fief. There was Colonel Nemo, with a dark-eyed narrow face, and the dying butt of a Galois troop, the harsh, black-tobaccoed French GI cigarette, always in one corner of his mouth. 
Dodelier, who camouflaged a keen mind in the unprepossessing exterior of a tough kid from the Paris streets, or the aristocrats, by virtue of title or exterior aspect, such as Blankart, with his always impeccable shirts and his eyeglass, or the intellectuals, men of true erudition and broad views who were able to look at themselves and at the whole Indochina war from a distance, in profile, as they said. It was one of the mobile group commanders who, during a lunch at his CP, came out with a clear definition as to how things were going. This is not a military war in the old sense. It is not even a political war. What we're facing here is a social war, a class war. As long as we don't destroy the Mandarin class, abolish excessive tenancy rates, and do fail to give every farmer his own plot of land, this country will go communist as soon as we turn our backs. As long as we don't give the Vietnamese the only program they could really be expected to fight for, we're doomed to fight this war without any hopes for success and die here like mercenaries, unquote and unquote. The GMs were in large part what kept the heavily penetrated Red River Delta and the enemy's highlands from suddenly turning to the Viet Minh on any particular day. Delatra began to call the group of armored and airborne officers that led them the Marshals of the Empire, recalling the young generals who had held together Napoleon's conquests. The mobile groups were made up of colonials and Frenchmen, foreign legionnaires, and more and more Vietnamese with every passing month, whole groups being made up of locals by war's end. Quote, the background of the commanders would be as diverse as the troops themselves. Vanushem, for example, though a regular soldier, was also a university professor of philosophy in France. With his reddish beard, his huge frame, and his dark green beret adorned with the five-pointed silver star of the Muang, he certainly was an amazing figure of a military leader. But even Vanushem was hardly more amazing than the northern theater commander appointed in 1953, Major General Cogni. A regular army officer, Cogni had fought in the underground against the Germans, had been captured and tortured by the Gestapo, and ended the war as a walking skeleton at the infamous Matthausen concentration camp. His encounters with the Gestapo had left him with a severe limp. A six-foot-three giant, Cogni II, had a remarkable academic background, an LLD and a diploma, equivalent to a master's degree from the French Institute of Political Science, Sciences Po. Then there were men such as Bigard, a paratroop major who was to become a lieutenant colonel at Dien Bien Phu. He began World War II as a master sergeant, was taken prisoner by the Germans in 1940, escaped from Germany all the way into French West Africa, parachuted into France into 1944 to help create guerrilla units, and commanded the 6th Colonial Parachute Battalion in Indochina. And there were the others. Dikar Garavat, commander of Mobile Group 4, with his horn-rimmed glasses, his droop-rim campaign hat and long jaw, looking very much like an English country squire, and De Castries, with the bright red field cap of the Spahis, his eternal silk scarf and his reputation as a great ladies' man. These were the men and the troops who were to carry the burden of the battle until the end of the Indochina War, constantly shunted about in a clanking and roar of hundreds of truck and tank engines, wrapped in clouds of dust during the dry season and covered with mud during the monsoon, hardly ever at rest, doing the repairs and maintenance during brief periods of lull, stretching the endurance of materiel and troops to the breaking point." Delatre's other main contribution to French strategy was the creation of the Delatre Line, reminiscent of the Maginot Line, a cordon of watchtowers, bunkers, and reinforced concrete encircling the embattled Red River Delta from north of Haiphong in a wide sweep around Hanoi and down to Ninh Binh in the south. It was, finally, a move to consolidate French control where it mattered, where the rice was, and to invite North Vietnamese attack where the French were strong, rather than waiting for it out in the jungles, far from help. Delatre supervised the construction of the line with as much energy as he'd surveyed the country on his arrival, driving his construction crews to exhaustion and creating more than a thousand new posts with interlocking trench lines and fields of fire by the end of 1951. 
With each new bunker a potential base, the mobile groups could rocket around the delta, putting out fires and staunching the flow of rice. With these structures in place, or at least with their construction ongoing, Delatre could begin to think about taking the initiative back from Jap. Before that, though, he had two remaining troubles. Finding the men to man the new line of fortifications, with so many troops now siphoned off into the mobile groups and airborne detachments, and finding the supplies to keep them fighting. The solution to the first problem lay in small part in badgering Paris for more African and legionary troops, and in large part by accelerating the growth of the new Vietnamese National Army, and in Johnny's Ma, yellowing, the inclusion of Vietnamese troops in French units. What's interesting here is that the United States briefly tried the same experiment in Korea, drafting Korean National Army troops directly into American fighting units. Given that the Koreans didn't speak English, the GIs didn't speak Korean, and the American military spent no time training those troops, they mostly surrendered and deserted, leaving a bad taste in U.S. mouths and preventing them from ever attempting the same thing once they began to take their turn in Vietnam. The French, by contrast, inducted their Vietnamese recruits by subjecting them to the same training, as enlisted men and officers, as any Frenchman. And given that many of the long-serving French soldiers spoke a Vietnamese patois, and the Vietnamese spoke French nearly to a man, the Chanismant ended up a massive success, with technically French units including more than 50, 60, or even 70 or 80 percent Vietnamese by the end of the war. I bring this up only to point out that it's the French, under, finally, good leadership, doing now, when it was too late, what might have led them to winning the war earlier on, or having avoided it entirely before that. I said a long, long time ago that if there was ever a right way to colonize, when colonization, that is the conquest of other countries, was still by and large seen as morally acceptable, including by the colonized peoples, then the way to do it would have been a speedy integration of the colonized people into a union under absolutely equal terms. That's what the French began doing at this late date with their army, and it was to their surprise not just a matter of necessity, but exactly the right thing to do at the time and the right thing to have done much, much earlier. As for his supplies, Delatre looked to the Americans, and they, with their attachés much impressed by his bearing and the new breath of command on the air, increased and sped up deliveries of supplies still further. They especially upped their deliveries of a weapon whose jungle-fighting abilities they'd just learned to appreciate in Korea. From an American pilot quoted in Arundhati Roy's foreword to Chomsky's For Reasons of State, quote, We sure are pleased with those backroom boys at Dow. The original product wasn't so hot. If the gooks were quick, they could scrape it off. So the boys started adding polystyrene. Now it sticks like shit to a blanket. But then if the gooks jumped underwater, it stopped burning. So they started adding willy peat, white phosphorus, so as to make it burn better. It'll even burn underwater now. And just one drop is enough. It'll keep on burning right down to the bone, so they die anyway from phosphorus poisoning, unquote. As Fall writes, though, even all of this, even the napalm, didn't serve to make life on the Delatre line pleasant or endurable. Inasmuch as it might have been the right move for the French, Jap's troops still enjoyed the loyalties of the villages, the cover of darkness and the jungle, and above all, the choice of when and where to attack, while the soldiers in the bunkers watched and waited. In his book, Fall lays out some of the types of bunkers, their yearly improvements, and describes the well-appointed complexes, known as luxury motels, with their names painted on their roof that the French let their American backers and journalists tour. I don't know any way to bring this all across except by letting Fall tell it. I've tried to paraphrase or condense and it just doesn't do him or them justice. So, again, quote, But on the other end of the social scale was the anonymous nine men and a sergeant bunker of the Delatra line, with no name on its roof, 
with no identity whatever, except a whitewash scrawled PK followed by a number. PK for a kilometer post, followed by the number that lay between it and some point of reference. And if the post only possessed a poor little gun without any pull or any relations higher up at headquarters, as someone aptly put it, then it was perhaps only entitled to 30 shells a month, or less, and could not clamor for air support and artillery barrages. When the Viet Minh came at night and blew up its barbed wire with Bangalore's, and his death volunteers threw themselves with TNT satchel charges against the Munker's ports, the little bunker had to wait for its turn for help if the Viet's attacked at the same time as one of those luxury motels in the area. And if it was too late, then, to help the little fellow, it did not even rate a footnote in GHQ's morning report. Perhaps the sector's operations officer would say, over the morning coffee, to one of his colleagues, Did you hear about what happened to PK-141? For even in death it did not become the little bunker at Tho Lam or Bin Dong, commanded by Sergeant Dupont. It got clobbered last night. The Moraine flew over it this morning and nothing stirred. Also, it looked a bit charred around the ports, the pilot said. Well... We'll send the tank platoon up to see what's what, clean up the mess, and get the bodies back. Damn, this is the third bunker this month. There goes another 57, two machine guns, the grenades, and the radio set. Hanoi's going to bitch like hell. And that was all the requiem that PK-141 ever got. Yet life in the 30 by 30 pillboxes was sheer hell even without combat. It meant sitting in a hot, airless, dank cube of concrete embedded in the stench of its own human excrements. It meant eating, day in, day out, monotonous FOM rations, hastily cooked over a gasoline stove. It meant staying awake at night listening to the clanking of the empty ration cans hung on the barbed wire as warning bells. They often rang under the push of a rat or of the night wind, but on the hundredth or hundred and twentieth time, after months of calm, they would ring for the Viet Minh death volunteer, pushing a TNT charge atop a long bamboo pole under the wire and against the wall of the pillbox. If done well, the noise alone could burst the eardrums of the men inside. Where the blast would disable one of the heavy machine guns before the battle even began, or a lucky bazooka round would enter one of the ports and the bunker's crew would die instantly in the searing blast of its own exploding ammunition boxes. But sometimes the bunker was lucky. It would hear the enemy in time, would repel the first assault, and would settle down to the grim infighting, the deadly game of patience called defense of a bunker. The game had its own precise rules, one of the most important being its duration. It lasted generally seven hours, depending on the moon or the season. Since the Viet Minh would attack the pillbox only during moonless nights or after the moon had set, certain parts of the month, and the longer winter nights in particular, would be particularly favorable for the job. The bunker's crew would fight in absolute pitch-black darkness, since light inside the bunker would outline its portholes to the Viet's or impair the men's night vision. Flare shells from the artillery or the flash of their own weapons would provide for some visibility outside. After a few minutes' intensive fighting, the cordite smoke of the fort's own firing weapons would make the air inside the concrete cube almost unbreathable. Eyes would begin to smart, and throats, already constricted by exertion and fear, would choke from want of clean air. And so it would go on, for hours. Then, all of a sudden, there would be silence and the gunners would distinguish a few shadows disappearing in the milky gray dawn. The Viets were breaking off the fight. This had not yet been the final hour for PK-141, or 6-3, or another of the hundreds along the line. And later in the morning, combat engineers would arrive with an armored car or two, inspect the damage, noting how the box had stood up. Perhaps next year's pillbox model would have an improved aeration system or a narrower firing slit, and the trucks would replenish the ammunition and take with them Sergeant DuPont's report for the sector commandant, unquote. It's a bleak sentiment, and fall means it to be. Because for all that it seems to me to have been the right move, and even better, bolstered by Delatra's leadership and the speed of the mobile groups that could come to their support, it could only work, 
the Delatra line could only work as a means to our particular end, forcing Jap to the table before Chinese supplies and rice made the delta itself irrelevant. As an end in itself, rather than a means to some other end, the Delatra line would get them nowhere at all. Persia suddenly became a center of vital interest. At Abaddon, we had built the world's largest oil refinery, employing more than 60,000 persons. While new terms for Persia were under discussion, a nationalization law amounting to virtual confiscation was put into action by Premier Mossadegh. Soon, riots broke out. In the end, we were forced to evacuate our 500 million pound property. Soon after, Egypt revoked her treaty to Britain and proclaimed Farouk king of Egypt and the Sudan. Under the treaty, the Suez Canal Zone was British controlled to guard the vital east-west ocean shortcut for the use of the world. About 9,000 ships a year passed through the canal. Egypt demanded immediate withdrawal of British forces and terrorists began to attack our men. Villages had to be searched to rout out snipers. Ambushed, sniped, stabbed in the dark, our men have a difficult task against murder gangs and other threats. Now Egypt has withdrawn her ambassador. Back from Korea, we welcomed men who earned America's highest unit award for bravery in the field, the Gloucesters. But they'll be the first to tell you that all our boys out there are doing a wonderful job. General Vo Nguyen Jap took Delatra's arrival in theater not as perhaps the threat that he should have, but as a kind of gratification, a kind of compliment. The French had been sending him a merry-go-round of second stringers for years, but now he was winning, he was on the offensive, and suddenly here was a hero of the Republic to attend him. Quote, The French are sending against the People's Army a foe worthy of its steel, unquote, he said at the time, quote, We will defeat him on his own ground, unquote. Japanese Chinese advisors weren't put off from their previous plans by Delatra's arrival, to say the least, and they continued preparing for their more ambitious spring offensive. Logoval notes that Viet Minh opinion wasn't unanimous over the move from the second stage of Revolutionary War to the general offensive, but that it was leaning in that direction, and with both Jap support and drastically dwindling rice supplies, the DRVN's leadership, the Viet Minh's leadership structure, and the Communist Party's Politburo all ended up favoring an attack on the Red River Delta itself. Doubts aside, that's where the rice was. Jap, of course, enjoyed none of the advantages in the Delta that had facilitated his still-costly victory along the border. The train was not mountainous, but open. French supply chains were not thin, stretched, and circuitous, but short and direct. French air support wasn't hours but minutes away. And the French weren't fighting over a peripheral area, but for their last foothold in the north of the country. Despite all that, the attack would go forward in the new year. Jap had to knock a hole in the growing and fortifying Delatra line, and he chose Vinyen on the evening of January 13th to make his try. Vinyen lies just 20 miles north or so of Hanoi, sitting at the end of a little finger of high ground that extends down from the Viet Bac almost to within shouting distance of the town. I'm not sure that it represented anything in particular to Jap except a conveniently close point of attack from which to try to crack the defense around the delta. Chap's forces stepped off by mounting a diversion in an ambush, a tactic that the DRVN army would go on using for the rest of the war. They took Bao Chuk, a small fort the last of whose 50 Senegalese and Vietnamese defenders died trying to clear their ramparts in a second bayonet charge. The mobile group dispatched to Bao Chuk's rescue ran into an elaborate ambush on the road prepared for just that purpose, losing nearly two battalions, or more than a third of its strength, before making a fighting retreat back to Vinh Yen. 
Jap's forces closed the Frenchmen into the town, which lies in a kind of elbow of the Red River, and began moving in to destroy this force, which would have left the way to Hanoi wide open. It was at this point, on the 14th of January, that General Delatre took personal charge of proceedings. He flew his little Moraine spotter plane into Vignette, ordering as he did it the airlift of reserves from Cochin China and the redisposition of mobile groups to serve as reserves and to begin breaking through to the town. When his chief of staff became frantic at the prospect of losing the commander-in-chief in a communist pocket, he replied, Well then, break through and get me out. The groups sent to the rescue found the hills around the town curiously vacant of Viet Minh troops. And just as the sun was setting and the newly arrived French were preparing their positions, Jap's men surged into action, emerging from hiding in the hills in an attempt to totally submerge another mobile group and the town beyond it. It was the first time that the French had seen and that the Viet Minh had used the human wave attacks their Chinese advisors had been pushing for, having seen their success in Korea. Now, a couple of notes right here in the middle of all this on the human wave, the most important of which is to say that pretty much all uses of the term in Korea and Vietnam in American books are really wrong and misleading. Human wave attacks exist. That's what going over the top was in the Great War. Lines of men charging fixed defenses with no concealment trying to close to zero distance. What the Chinese and Vietnamese practiced was called the short attack. Using trenches, or in the case of Vinh Yen, just hiding in forests, the attacker gets very close and then sends large numbers of small squads to penetrate a small portion of the line. To submerge wasn't literally to bury the defender in bodies, which is what the term sort of evokes, but to sneak so many men around, through, and over the enemy's foxholes that soon he's adrift in a sea of enemies, attacked from all sides. Submerged. I bring this all up for a few reasons. First, I want to start condensing these battles later in the episode, and I want you to be able to accurately understand the shorthand that I'll be using. Second, I want you to get that even though this isn't the human wave as commonly conceived, there are huge numbers of men in reserve waiting to attack, even if it's not thousands deploying all at once. And third, I want us to think about what this kind of thing would take. I don't have the sources to put the names and faces to the Viet Minh combatants like I do the French with Bernard Fall's books. And no matter how romantic and heroic their soldiers' sacrifices were, often and especially their colonial and local troops, the Viet Minh's were all the more, given theirs was the just cause and their losses always the greater. So we've got to use our imaginations to reflect on their Golgothas and cavalries. The Chinese and Vietnamese short attacks were never as clearly suicidal as the charges the French themselves had mounted at Ypres and Verdun, but they were relentless, squad after squad until the line broke or the Viet Minh commanders gave it up. What it would take, and what it did take, for these men, tired, far from home, undernourished, to make their runs on the French trenches, machine guns, and artillery. It wasn't quite fanaticism, a term that in our wars with the Third World we always apply pejoratively. But it was dedicated, heroic, brave, all the more so because I believe that it was informed. The DRVN army had, as we heard last episode, political cadres down to the platoon level. These were commissars, but they weren't quite the commissars of Soviet Russia executing the cowardly. Their role was political education, to make sure that every private soldier knew why he was fighting where and what role he played in the effort. When that role became or approached suicidal sacrifice, again, we tend to get squeamish looking back at it. We want to push it on to communist brainwashing or some other kind of fanaticism. 
but it's distinct. Read memoirs of our own fighting men from the Second World War, and you'll find that until the last months of that war, most never expected to make it home. They knew that they would probably die over there, or they thought that they would. And in that kind of headspace, great sacrifice became much easier to understand. At this point, the Viet Minh were in the fifth year of a brutal war, and if there was any end in sight, as their cadres had surely informed them, it lay in this battle, in breaking the French here, today, now. The Viet Minh soldier was also, unlike our boys in Normandy, raised in a collectivist rather than an individualist culture, very much aware of how small a part he played in the grand struggle. There's a story that will come up later when we talk about Dien Bien Phu. The Viet Minh, like at Dong Kag, were laboriously hauling huge artillery pieces onto the hills above the valley. Hundreds of men were hauling ropes, pushing, grinding thousands of pounds of steel uphill in the jungle. And as one of these 105s had nearly reached the summit of the hill, a rope snapped. And a Viet Minh soldier, rather than allow it to roll back down again, threw himself into the workings of wheel and axle to halt its progress. It would have been an unthinkable act for a Western soldier, but in the real context of the war, probably a greater individual contribution to the effort than just making up a fifth of a squad in another short attack. The Viet Minh there in front of Vinh Yen were not fanatics, not brainwashed, not even, by and large, communist. But they were determined, if they had to, to pile up the bodies. And so the Viet Minh attacked the hill line and poured on not in waves but in narrow torrents, threatening immediately to overwhelm the French defenders. Delatra understood that this was it, and called in every single plane at his disposal, from fighter bombers to mail transports, to participate in what became the largest bombardment of the French war. From Bernard Fall, quote, Waves of fighter bombers threw up a curtain of roaring napalm between the attacking communists and the exhausted French defenders, literally roasting thousands of the enemy, but to little avail, unquote. The French fell backwards towards Vignen, and the Vietnamese, now in control of nearly all the hills around the town, pushed in. Delatra rushed his last available mobile group to the scene, struggling to make contact with the last French hilltop. As Fall writes, quote, One of its battalions again got badly mauled by a wave attack of Division 312, but once more the napalm of the fighter bombers did its deadly job, and by the noon of January 17th, Jap's troops began to disappear in the woods of the Tam Dao, unquote. Again from Fall, a Vietnamese officer described this final attack, quote, The French troops react in terrible fashion. We're waiting here all morning. Here and there one can see the battle develop, but my company, unfortunately, has nothing to do. Yes, we would certainly like to participate in the battle, which will decide the fate of Hanoi. It is already mid-January, and Tet will be here in a few weeks, in a month and a half. We want to be in Hanoi for the Tet. To the south, we can hear the guns rumble like drums. French shells are getting closer and closer, and we already have seen some of our wounded leaving the line and coming back to where we are. The platoon commanders come over to me, bringing resolutions and petitions from their men. It is always a great comfort to me, before every assault or particularly dangerous action, to feel the unity of the men and the cadres, and with it, that of the whole people's army. I accept all the petitions. Each platoon requests the honor of being assigned the most difficult or the most dangerous mission. All of a sudden, a sound can be heard in the sky and strange birds appear, getting larger and larger. Airplanes. I ordered my men to take cover from the bombs and machine gun bullets, but the planes dived upon us without firing their guns. However, all of a sudden, hell opens in front of my eyes. Hell comes in the form of large, egg-shaped containers, dropping from the first plane, followed by other eggs from the second and third plane. 
Immense sheets of flames, extending over hundreds of meters it seems, strike terror into the ranks of my soldiers. This is napalm, the fire which falls from the skies. Another plane swoops down behind us and again drops a napalm bomb. The bomb falls closely behind us and I can feel its fiery breath touching my whole body. The men are now fleeing in all directions and I cannot hold them back. There is no way of holding out under this torrent of fire which flows in all directions and burns everything on its passage. On all sides, flames surround us now. In addition, French artillery and mortars now have our range and transform into a fiery tomb what had been, ten minutes ago, a quiet part of the forest. We flee through the bamboo hedges towards the west and I cry, Assemble in the woods behind the hill! But who listens to me and who can hear me? Unquote. A firestorm 500 yards wide separated the French from the Viet Minh, whose officers ordered them off the field. Last from fall, quote, The French looked around themselves with disbelief. The enemy had been defeated and the French remained masters of the battlefield, unquote. Jap's forces left 6,000 men dead on the field and another 500 in French hands. A disastrous end to an effort that had required the assembly of tens of thousands of troops and two million mandates from its porters. General Diap would try twice more to break through into the Delta in the spring, attempts that Logoval characterizes as part of a need to prove that he had been correct in moving to the third stage of the Revolutionary War. But I think that assessment is unfair to Jap, both in a military and a moral sense. General Vo Nguyen Jap, whatever his communism, was no more eager to throw away the lives of his young men than any French or American commander. In committing to battles like Vignen, what he understood was that his lone advantage over the French was in manpower. And if the war was right enough, was just enough to be fought, then it was just enough to be won. As to why he tried twice more, well, with the benefit of hindsight, it seems mad. But the Battle of Vignen was a close-run thing, saved only at the last minute by the greatest use of French air power in history to that point. If it took two more, or even three more, or even ten more battles like Vignen to win the war then in 1951, that would almost certainly save even greater losses if it went on until 1952 or 53, or as it did in fact, until mid-1954. In any case, Jap did continue in March, north of Haiphong at Mao Kei. Forty miles from the threatened town of Hanoi, where the French are confined to the delta of the Red River, three paratroop battalions land to destroy strong points built by rebels in no man's land. Chinese-trained rebel troops, 20 battalions strong, infiltrated over a large area ahead of the main force. Not far from here, there's a jungle fort. The attack begins. It may seem a lot of power to clean up a bunch of rebels, but this is a real strong point. Under cover of the guns, the paratroopers round up 3,000 prisoners. In a 12 days expedition, the total force of nine battalions freed 100 villages and upset red plans for an early attack on Hanoi. The Mao Kei attack, meant to allow the Viet Minh to take Haiphong and move into the Delta, stepped off on March 23rd. Similar to Vinh Yen, extensive preparations culminated in a short attack at night that overwhelmed the first lines of French defenses, and the morning saw artillery fires and napalm bombardments break up the Viet Minh formations. There's plenty of heroism and drama to be reported, and you can get it in Fall's book, The Street Without Joy. But Jap broke off the attack five days later, having nearly but not quite taken Mao Kei, and having left some indeterminate number more than 400 bodies on the field. 
Jep went all the way around the delta to try his third attack, this time moving up from the south at Ninh Binh and Nam Dinh across the Day River and into the French pocket within the Delatra line. The location served, I think, to keep the French off balance, and if the operation ended up succeeding only in part, that is, if Jap only managed to take part of the delta or only managed to take part of it temporarily, then the Viet Minh troops would at least be able to devastate the Catholic bishoprics that had been preventing the infiltration of communist DRVN cadres in the south of the delta. Jap's troops took another cue from the Chinese tactics on the Korean peninsula, infiltrating two entire regiments behind the French troops and fortifications on the Day River, isolating them from their lines of supply before the battle even began. The Day River battle ended up being by far the largest of Jap's three attempts to crack the Delatra line, and over the course of almost three weeks, it was also the closest he ever came to blowing a hole in that line, with the French rushing every spare mobile group, airborne battalion, and armored company to the defense, likewise deploying light riverborne assault groups called the Dinaso, whose creation, Fall says, quote, may well have been one of the few worthwhile contributions of the Indochina War to military knowledge. This concentration of mobile riverborne firepower permitted fairly effective attacks on the enemy supply lines which, of necessity, had to cross the Day River, unquote. The Dinaso ended up serving as a model for the U.S. Brownwater Navy, and if you Google that phrase, Brownwater Navy, your search results will turn up the Wikipedia article, which features a U.S. Navy PT boat blasting a Vietnamese riverbank with a stream of thrown napalm, which is pretty much right on the nose. In the end, like the other attacks on the Delta, Jap's troops, no matter how well infiltrated, concealed, and relentlessly deployed, could not contend with overwhelming concentrations of French artillery and air power so close to their base areas. On June 18, 1951, just before the monsoon rains set in, Jap's campaign for the Delta ended, its last battle having left 9,000 Viet Minh troops dead on the field and another 1,000 in French custody. There was, however, one other aspect of the fight at the Day River that is relevant to us. From Fall, quote, During that chaotic first night of the battle, a battalion of hastily gathered Vietnamese reinforcements from nearby Nam Dinh was thrown into the battle. One of its companies, headed by the French commander-in-chief's only child, Lieutenant Bernard de Latre, was ordered to hold at all costs a French fort situated on a crag overlooking Ninh Binh. In spite of intense mortar shelling, the de Latre's company held on, but when dawn came, young de Latre and two of his senior NCOs lay dead on the crag. Before the Indochina War was over, 20 more sons of French marshals and generals were to die in it, as officers. Another 22 died in Algeria later on, unquote. In the aftermath of the Delta campaign, Jap remained C&C of Vietnamese People's Army, and Ho remained his backer. Fall thinks that may only have been the result of the whole Communist Party leadership having voted to move to the third phase of Revolutionary War, the General Offensive, and that otherwise Jap would have been on the chopping block. Fall was, despite his respect for Jap Ho and the Viet Minh in general, pretty anti-communist, and I think that his might be an ungenerous reading of events. It seems to me, again, that whatever its later failures in the implementation of policy, the Vietnamese Communist Party was something wholly apart, something wholly less paranoiac, suspicious, and murderous than its cousins in Moscow and Beijing. I think that it's true that Jap kept his job because the whole party leadership voted to move to the offensive, but not in the sense of the false unanimity that existed in those other capitals, and which you can get a funny look at in the death of Stalin, which I just saw on the plane coming back to Mexico. Fly Delta and Turkish Airlines, I guess. Rather, I think the party leadership voted for the offensive because they were actually convinced that it was time, and when it didn't work out, there was no need to scapegoat Jap because, well, they really had thought it was time. He gave as good a go of it as could have been given, and it didn't work out. One of Jap's orders of the day issued just after the battle read, quote, 
Our troops, who have shown their superiority as guerrillas should, from now on, not seek massive battle. The general counteroffensive is called off. Regional elements will enter by small groups into towns and reinforce the urban networks. The prize of revolutionary warfare remains the population, unquote. They were back to the second phase, presented in falls to Vietnam's as, quote, refusing to accept battle except on its own terms, and pursuing peripheral military objectives remote from French centers of power, while undermining the non-communist Vietnamese authorities and waiting for the break in French home front morale that French communist sources were doing their best to produce, unquote. The successful defense against Jap's attacks on the Delta did plenty to cheer the French colones in Indochina, and to prop up some of the support for the war at home, but Delatre himself was far from happy. He returned to Hanoi from Bernard's funeral in France, with what everyone reports as an even more ferocious energy than in the spring, pushing more manpower at the construction of the Delatra line, setting up nettoyage sweeps to clear the delta of infiltrators, their huge numbers so blatantly exposed for the French in the Battle of the Day River, and ran his aides ragged. Delatra's temper, always short, had been little improved by the loss of his son and what was now an ongoing battle with indigestion and dyspepsia. Even his most trusted aides became subject to tirades and suspicions. In the middle of summer, the commander-in-chief accused his second, General Raoul Salon, of being secretly pro-communist, smoking opium and playing poker, which are all presented together in the sources, but seem like pretty different and differently serious charges. Salon, who'd spent years and years in Indochina at this point, admitted to taking opium to calm his nerves, but said, in Logoval's words, that he was no leftist poker aficionado. The nettoyage sweeps to clear out Viet Minh infiltrators from the Delta achieved quote-unquote considerable initial success, sweeping up hoarded rice supplies, collapsing village tunnels, and every once in a while encountering a weapons cache or an actual cadre. But because Bao Dai's Vietnamese puppet government had no real civil service or administrative apparatus to then install in the villages after the French left, the Viet Minh strolled right back in, or more accurately, just stopped pretending not to be Viet Minh. Delatra's ire then also fell on Bao Dai's weak, apathetic government and on the middle-class Vietnamese, whose interests his war with the communists was supposedly protecting, who could not be induced to join the new Vietnamese army. Logoval points out at this point, despite a serious lack of medics, not one Vietnamese doctor had joined the fight. This was a problem that the Americans would encounter afterwards, and they would describe the lazy, apathetic, treacherous, ungrateful Vietnamese in the same terms that Delatra used. But the French were having the same problem the Americans had later. If the only thing you give the people to fight for is their own colonization, hidden behind the thin veil of a puppet government, then how can you expect them to fight? I want to give you a pretty longish section from Frances Fitzgerald. She's talking about the Americans during the time of Ngo Dinh Diem, from the mid-1950s through the early 1960s, but it applies one-to-one to the French situation right now, too. Everywhere she says American, think French. Everywhere she says ZM, think Bao Dai, or just the French regime. Quote, The American ability to intervene in the affairs of South Vietnam was not then at all in question. The southern politicians were ready to accept any foreign power that would feed and protect them. It was the hope of building a strong, free nation that was absurd. How should the South build a strong, anti-communist government when most southerners continue to obey the old authorities of the family, the village, and the sect? Communist, anti-communist, the next war would begin in a language that few of them understood. A sociologist sent by the United States to Vietnam, Dr. Fischel, and his colleagues contended that the ZM regime was not the worst government in Asia, and possibly it was not. But the Vietnamese did not make such comparisons, nor did they look upon the corruption and the violence of the officials as natural or inevitable, an acceptable reversion to the traditions of the past. 
The behavior of the officials in fact excited more attention among Vietnamese than it did among Americans. With all the analyses of the American social scientists, it was a North Vietnamese author who compiled the best catalog of the official failings. Quote within the quote now. Breaches of the law. Because of personal enmity and rancor, you arrest honest people and confiscate their property, causing them distress. Sectarianism and connivance. You group your friends and relatives around you and you give them positions for which they have no ability. Those who are competent and satisfactory but do not please you are discarded. Division. You oppose one section of the people against another. Arrogance. Abusing your position. You become unruly and do things in your own way. Conceit. Thinking that an official is someone, you look upon the people with contempt. Localism. You heed only the interests of your own locality without taking into account the interests of the whole country. Militarism and bureaucracy. You behave like a small king when in charge of a region. You belittle your superiors and abuse your authority and weigh heavily upon your subalterns. You frighten people by a haughty bearing. Formalism. Questions are not considered for their practical results or urgency, but only for showing off. Paperwork. Love of red tape. Returning to Fitzgerald now. The author of the catalog was not a Saigon-based intellectual, but Ho Chi Minh, speaking to the first groups of Viet Minh cadres in 1945 and 1947. The fact is significant, for it indicates that the failings of the Xiemist officials arose not out of any one political system, but out of the depths of the society. The American-backed regime did not create these failings. On the other hand, it could do nothing about them. It could not even analyze them, for although they were not natural or traditional, they stemmed from the disintegration of the old society, from a process that it itself did not recognize. And it was this disintegration rather than the larger political or regional divisions that defeated that regime." Unquote. Speaking of the Americans too, they were the other group with whom Delatre grew increasingly angry as 1951 went on. His success in defending the Delta brought in more American aid, sure, but with it came more American advisors and more American attempts to deliver that aid directly to the Vietnamese, a usurpation of the general's authority, who Le Roy Jean was not going to accept. Likewise, Delatre saw the Americans as contributing to the problem of Vietnamese apathy, with their press and even some members of their government publicly questioning French resolve to grant full Vietnamese independence, and that resolve was, obviously, questionable. The U.S. Information Service, USIS, about which we heard in the Guatemala episodes, and part of the panoply of intervention, also began to insinuate itself into Vietnamese life, teaching English classes and translating U.S. history books into Vietnamese. Delatro liked that about as much as the other stuff. The News Magazine of the Screen, produced by Warner Pathé News. Living glimpses of history in the making, presented as a public service and as a special service to Wisconsin schools by Wisconsin's largest bank, the first Wisconsin National Bank of Milwaukee, established in 1853. China, the Reds take a hammering. General Delanars, French theater commander, sees his flyers blast the enemy with napalm bombs. With French and loyal Vietnam forces disorganized after the death of the dynamic General Delatre, the Reds made substantial penetrations into Allied territory. 
But now counterattacks have pushed the enemy back and have taken nearly 5,000 new communist prisoners in this six-year-old, $3 million a day war. As in all war, the most pathetic victims are the civilians, like this old man who greets us politely, then passes on. Coming back to American decision-making in earnest, if you've listened to the last show about George Kennan and the early Cold War, you know that now, in 1951, Truman's administration in general, and his State Department under Atchison in particular, were coming under more and more unscrupulous attacks from the Republican Party and Henry Luce's Time and Life magazines as communist sympathizers. Those attacks, combined with the fall of China, the Korean War, and Moscow and Beijing's recognition of Ho's DRVN, was making the otherwise nuanced Atchison much more prone to accept French framing of their war not as a colonial effort, but as part of a worldwide anti-communist crusade. The last of the old Asia hands at state were telling Atchison that the war in Indochina was already for all intents and purposes hopeless, and that our best bet lay in pushing the French to negotiate with Ho, but events and advice were running in the other direction. Pro-French conservatives at state teamed up with the U.S.'s ambassador to France, telling Atchison that any failure in our resolve to support the war might destroy the tentative, centrist balance of French domestic politics. The communists in Paris were opposed to NATO, whose formation was close to finishing up, and General de Gaulle's Nationalist Party was likewise opposed to any European coalition that included a resuscitated West Germany. The socialists, the oddly named centrist radical socialists, and the center-right MRP were working NATO out with us, and the MRP had tied their political fortunes to the war, so that any failure there risked turning the government over to the left or right and tanking our European plans. Even forcing the French to commit to real Vietnamese independence, these advisors said, might cause France's other colonies, like Morocco and Tunisia, to do the same thing, which would, they also said, rile up the French public and likewise turn the government left or right. I don't know enough about French politics to really evaluate those arguments in depth, but given that poll after poll found the French public not in support of the war, and given that all but the most leftist Frenchmen were totally uninterested in getting the USSR involved in France, they seem to me to be pretty shaky justifications. And I think that we probably could have continued implementing our plans in Europe even had the French made peace in Vietnam. Our consul general in Saigon likewise told Atchison that, quote, Our support will not ensure Bao Dai's success, but the lack of it will probably make certain his failure, unquote, tying this into the global communist crusade. And I think that evaluation is true, except that the real caveat was that nothing would ensure Bao Dai's success. In any case, Atchison and Truman's resolve to help the French only increased over the summer. Thomas E. Dewey, then governor of New York and the Republicans' presidential nominee back in 1948, visited Indochina in July, and he found himself totally captivated by Delatre, suggesting that the general take a trip to the United States to personally call for more support. And at that moment, all parties were on board, so Truman and Atchison prepared to receive Delatre in September. The French CNC stopped over in Paris on its way to the U.S., wowing Henry Cabot Lodge, who will come up much, much later in this story, and General Dwight Eisenhower, though impressing the Britons, who already knew him, as fatigued and worn down. Delatre arrived in the U.S. on 13 September to obsequious fanfare from Henry Luce's time, which said that he had been, quote, fighting one of freedom's bloodiest and most crucial battles, unquote, for nine months and that new aid for Indochina was essential, since it was, quote, the rampart against the communist surge towards Singapore and the Indies, unquote. 
Salatra stayed in the U.S. for two weeks, giving speeches and taking meetings in order to portray the war in Indochina as a black and white West versus communism type struggle. In particular, that Korea and Vietnam were two ends of the same struggle. Except that while the U.S. headed a U.N. force, France was alone in Southeast Asia. Delatra also, in contrast to his own personal regalism, talked up French chances for victory, if only more aid could be secured. From Logoval, quote, At the Pentagon a few days later, Delatra tried again. If you lose Korea, he told Secretary of Defense Robert Lovett and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Asia is not lost. But if I lose Indochina, Asia is lost. Tonkin was the key to Southeast Asia, and if Southeast Asia went, India would burn like a match, and there'd be no hindrance to the march of communism before Suez and Africa. The Muslim world would be engulfed, the Muslims of North Africa would fall in line, and Europe itself would be outflanked. Lovett praised Delatra's exegesis and said he agreed the stakes in Vietnam were huge, but he added that the United States has a primary obligation in other theaters, whereas your primary obligation is in your own theater. When Delatra complained that he felt at times during his visit like a quote-unquote beggar and that quote, your spirit should lead you to send me greater military aid without my asking, unquote, Lovett said, quote, we all regard General Delatra as a comrade in arms and will do everything possible for his theater within our own capabilities, unquote. The general shot back, do not say my theater, it is our theater, unquote, and unquote. Whether or not Delatra got the Americans privately into his headspace, publicly Truman and the Congress were more behind the French than ever, and the publicity tour had done more than a bit to raise the profile of the French war in the United States. Before the visit, the U.S. had already delivered hundreds of fighters, bombers, and transport planes, along with mountains of small arms, artillery, and ammunition, although Logoval notes that the deliveries were behind what had originally been scheduled. After the general left with his wife on the 25th, the U.S. Army Chief of Staff J. Lawton Collins promised to expedite deliveries, and through the end of the year, the Americans delivered 130,000 tons of military materiel, including 53 million rounds of ammo, 8,000 general-purpose vehicles, 650 combat vehicles, 200 aircraft, 14,000 automatic weapons, and some 3,500 radios, the last of which, once they had been captured, would serve the Viet Minh particularly well. On his way back to Indochina through Paris again, Delatra finally submitted to a medical examination after months of fatigue and indigestion. A checkup led to an operation led to a diagnosis of stomach cancer, with doctors telling the general that whatever time he had left would be brief. Delatra, undeterred, flew back to Indochina and prepared to lead the fall offensive. There was, coincidentally, one other party of foreigners headed to French Indochina in mid-October 1951 the young congressman John Fitzgerald Kennedy, along with his brother Bobby and his sister Pat, finishing up their tour of the Middle East and Asia. Kennedy, receiving information on Vietnam in person for the first time, caught a much less rosy view of events than what the French had publicly espoused, what they let through AFP, and what Henry Luce allowed time and life to publish. I want to tell you that I am here, invited by the committee of the chief of staff, and delighted to be so. I am here as a soldier, and I want to speak everywhere as a soldier. You see, I know you are very interested by the question of Indochina, and I, I am very interested to explain you exactly what job we are making there. Indeed, we are not making a colonial war. You know it very purely. It's finished, that kind of story, and those who think always that, I think they have missed the boat. We are there to help. The 
associated nations that are now independent. We are here to help them to make their independence a reality. And we have not only given to them that independence, but we have guaranteed that independence. And it's not a simple job. And the war we are making with them to protect them is a very hard war against an enemy whose name is Ho Chi Minh and Viet Minh and which is absolutely communist enemy. You know, we are making there the war against communists. That's the reason why in Korea there is a war against communists. In Indochina there is a war against communists. In Korea and Indochina there is the same war. There is one war in Asia and we know and I am here everywhere explaining making the demonstration of the truth that Korea and Indochina are the same battlefield for liberty against communists. And now I was explaining also the big effort which is made to give specially national armies to those countries of which we are protecting the growing up to independence. And I am so pleased to explain the great confidence we can give to those young men of those countries, those young men who are very easy to be fanatized in a great spirit for the future of their country. JFK and his siblings touched down in Saigon at Tan Son Newt near the end of a seven-week, 25,000-mile tour meant to flip up the young congressman's foreign policy bona fides before a run for the Senate. They had already been through Israel, Iran, Pakistan, India, Singapore, Thailand, and Malaya, with Korea and Japan left to go. The strain of the long travel was already playing on the elder Kennedy, whose Addison's disease would come close to killing him on this trip. Even as they were leaving the airport, small arms fire broke out, alerting the three of them to that inasmuch as the French would have liked to portray themselves as in full control of the South, the Viet Minh still had an active presence within 20 miles of the city, and attacks and bombings, though less common than in the late 1940s, were still a fact of life in France's Paris of the Orient. In fact, a few months before, in a rare episode of suicide bombing, since the so-called Viet Minh quote-unquote death volunteers were so named more because of the risks of dying trying to get to what they were doing, pushing bombs up to bunkers with sticks, than the certainty of actually being killed by it. A young operative had blown himself, a French brigadier general and a Vietnamese governor, up at a public reception on the outskirts of the southern capital. French authorities informed the Kennedys that they couldn't leave Saigon by car. While the French were for the most part in control of the roads during daylight, they could not rule out bombings or ambushes in the daytime, and losing a U.S. congressman and his siblings in their zone of control would hardly have gone over well in D.C. Quote, cannot go outside city because of guerrillas, unquote. The dear Lord, one year younger than me right now, Bobby Kennedy wrote in his diary. Quote, could hear shooting as evening wore on, unquote. Jack Kennedy spent much of his time in Saigon talking not to people in official positions, but to journalists who he felt might have a clearer read on the situation. He dropped in on Seymour Topping, head of the AP Indochina Bureau, telling the man that he'd only take a few minutes and staying for over two hours, grilling him on the war. Topping told Kennedy there in his apartment that the French were losing the war, and, and given that Ho Chi Minh had totally captured nationalist sympathies more than half a decade beforehand, there was nothing they could do to recover, especially now that Ho had secured training and supplies through the totally Viet Minh-controlled border with China. When Kennedy asked Topping what the Vietnamese thought of the United States, the journalist's answer was, not much. 
The U.S. had been revered across the region at the close of the Second World War for reasons we discussed shows ago. Their commitment to Philippine independence, their hands-off policies towards territories that they'd conquered, for the most part, I guess Guam doesn't count. And now, Topping said, with the Vietnamese very much aware of American support for the French, public opinion had shifted, and hard, in the other direction. Jack got the same opinion out of some of the younger staffers at the American legation, but in a premonition of what would happen under his own presidential administration, as he questioned men higher up the ranks, the pessimist realism turned to blithe optimism. Kennedy apparently pissed off the Francophile head of the delegation by asking him why exactly the body of the Vietnamese would want to fight to continue their own colonization. Delatra was as unhappy with the line of questioning, submitting a letter of complaint about the Kennedys to the American legation. Quote, We are more and more becoming colonialists in the minds of the people, unquote, JFK wrote in the diary he kept on the trip, which is in his presidential library, and whose pages you can literally go see online. Quote, Because everyone believes that we control the UN, and because our wealth is supposedly inexhaustible, we will be damned if we don't do what they, the emerging nations, want, unquote. JFK went on to echo Kennan, writing that the U.S. should avoid the old imperialist path and fight instead against, quote, the poverty and want, sickness and disease, and injustice and inequality, unquote, which were the real root causes of communism. When he made it back to Boston, Kennedy said to the Chamber of Congress there in a speech that, by contrast, is not in the online archive, and which I think you would have to travel to physically to lay hands on it, that, quote, in Indochina, we have allied ourselves to the desperate effort of the French regime to hang on to the remnants of an empire. There is no broad general support of the native Vietnam government among the people of that area, for it is a puppet government, unquote. Kennedy added that it was a common knowledge in Saigon and Hanoi, if not in time or life, or the capitals of the West, that, quote, a free election would go in favor of Ho and his communists, unquote. Back in Vietnam, Jap had drastically slowed even the pace of his guerrilla attacks at this point, using the summer rains to consolidate his forces and train up the militiamen who would have to replace the regulars who had died trying to break the Delatra line. The French, for their part, continued working the two major tactics that dominated the time they weren't spending fending off Jap, both of which enjoyed short-term success and long-term failure. The first were sweeps made by the mobile groups, these are somewhat like the operations Leah and Sanctuary that we heard about last episode, except more effective because the mobile groups themselves were more effective at what they did than the ad hoc group mons put together for the purpose by Valouis years before. Mechanized infantry went zipping towards a village from three different directions, encircling any militiamen there and trapping them in wide encirclements. For the most part, this is going on in the deltas and to a lesser, much less effective extent in the enemy's highlands and along the coast. The second tactic was that the French, when they had identified a village as a Viet Minh stronghold, they gave notice to the villagers that they would need to leave, and then they raised the whole Pueblo from the air, usually with a carpet of napalm. Both techniques were reasonably effective at doing what they were designed to do, capture or kill Viet Minh cadres and destroy Viet Minh redoubts. Both likewise further diminished the Viet Minh's already thinly stretched right supplies, but neither managed a lasting impact. The first because there was, again, no civil administration ready to take over for the French after their soldiers left, and the Viet Minh could move right back in. The second because if the village had been leaning pro-Viet Minh before its destruction, each and every villager tended to join the Viet Minh after the French had torched their entire birthplace. 
Sensing this ineffectiveness, and probably unable to judge, even with his highly effective intelligence services, just how much he was managing to starve Ho and Jap's forces. Not to mention very aware of his fast diminishing time to end his work in Indochina, General Delatre decided that he needed to push out of the Delta and force the Vietnamese to offer battle, using the opportunity to crush large numbers of them, as he had in the Day River fighting in the spring. The general chose the area around Hoa Binh to make his move, located in the mountains just southwest of Hanoi, on the left end of the Red River Delta and just outside of the Delatre line. Route Colonial 6 and the Black River, which is part of the Red River Delta system once it gets lower down and it joins that delta, both connected the capital with Hoa Binh, so supply problems, the French figured, would not be as difficult as in their earlier operations in the highlands. More importantly, the Viet Minh hadn't yet constructed the meandering, jungle-bound, precipitous mountain highways that would later be known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos and Cambodia. The rice coming up from the south and the Chinese trainers and supplies coming down from the north were passing through Indochina, and taking the hills around Hoa Binh might interrupt that supply. Two other considerations also came into play for the French. Hoa Binh was the ancestral capital of the Muang tribe, one of those non-ethnically Vietnamese mountainous peoples whose loyalty had turned to and remained stubbornly with the French. Definitively putting the town into French hands and keeping it there would help to secure the Muang, who at that point had already contributed thousands of troops and guides to the French forces. And finally, the French military was looking for funding both from their government in Paris and from their benefactors in Washington, and a big new win that proved the possibility of final victory was the order of the day. Now, what might sound odd about this plan, this operation, is that Hoa Binh was really just like a hard day's march or an easy bike ride from Hanoi. And moreover, it was connected by two good modes of transportation, the river and the route that we just mentioned. And while it was nestled in the foothills of the so-called Thai Highlands, it was just on the edge of the glass flat delta. How could it have been that the French were going to attack or take Hoa Binh? How could it have been that they didn't already have it? Well, I'm not sure I've been emphasizing it enough through this episode, but once Jap took the border forts, the French pulled nearly everything they had back to within the Delatre line, which passed within a day's hike of Hanoi. Really, really close to that capital. Remember way back to our few geography lessons? If Tonkin looks like a piece of popcorn, the size of the delta, the size of the area that the French controlled, that's the size of the kernel. Everything else, except for a few scattered French positions and a line of forts running up the Black River, everything else belonged to the Viet Minh, or at least would quickly belong to them if the French tried to linger there. So groups of paratroopers jumped off the operation on the 14th of November, dropping three battalions on Hoa Binh and encountering nearly no resistance there. At the same time, 22 infantry and artillery battalions, along with two armored groups and engineering forces, began to work their way up the Black River Valley. Although Logoval doesn't actually make clear whether they're on the river or on the RC-6, but they're both kind of in that valley, and I'm not sure it matters much to us. The French took all of their objectives, Hoa Binh and its environs, by the next day, with almost no losses and almost no opposition. Jap, knowing that he had no superiority of numbers, nor a good way to retreat his troops to safety if they were to lose an engagement, withdrew and began to form up a larger force to give the French what they'd come for. That preparation went on for weeks. The French, meanwhile, formed what they called a hedgehog, a recreation of the Delatre line in miniature, hoping to draw the Viet Minh explicitly into a meat-grinder engagement. In another premonition of American tactics later on, some Frenchmen might die, but air, armor, and superior armament would ensure that more, and maybe enough, Vietnamese died first. The weakness of the hedgehog was that unlike the Americans later on, 
The French didn't have all that many transport aircraft and fewer helicopters than you could count on your fingers, which meant that the new fortress had to be supplied by land or river. The RC-6, like all the other colonial routes, had been in continuous disrepair for over a decade, and bombings by the French had nearly erased it. As Giap concentrated his forces, French engineers worked frantically at filling trenches and craters and bridging streams. However, Fall writes, quote, until almost the end of the battle, they never had time to clear away the underbrush on both sides of the road, unquote, which we know by now is an ominous kind of statement. Moreover, and worse, the RC-6 proceeded mostly through valley bottoms, meaning that it was dominated by heights along its whole length, terrain features the French never had the men to take and control during the battle. Fall says that, quote, As it turned out, the battle for Hoa Bin was to become first and foremost a battle for the communications leading to it, unquote, which I think really applies to the whole length of both wars. The French ended up developing a system of forts and strongpoints along the Black River and the RC-6, meant to ward off Viet Minh ambushes, but which was really a recreation of the RC-4 in miniature. Little isolated castles that tied men down and that could not, when actually assaulted, resist the Viet Minh's short attack. And as the battle went on, and it would go on until February, for months, supplying these forts became as much of a problem for the French as supplying Hoa Binh itself. This fight, the Battle of Hoa Binh, it's... Well, it's tough to succinctly describe. Delatra was hoping that Jap would come to him, and come Jap did, but with a much better plan of his own. He waited until he could gather large numbers of troops and supplies, especially artillery and ammunition, the same one that he had in his attacks in the border forts. He had his troops dig trenches and hollow out hills, giving them avenues of approach to the French, surrounded by November and Hoa Bin, in which they were virtually immune to the now much-feared napalm of French close air support. And then Jap did what he would do more than a year later in Dien Bien Phu. He orchestrated slow, grinding attacks. Taking one hill here, wiping out a strong point there, harrying the French so that they had to continue pouring men and materiel into the hedgehog. All the while, Jap was training more anti-aircraft guns on the Hoa Bin airfield and pushing more troops onto the Black River and the RC-6, making sure that the French would burn even more men and supplies trying to, as Fall writes, quote, resupply five infantry battalions locked up in a pocket without the slightest offensive value, unquote. I'm going to give you just a bit more of fall here, for color, but in all seriousness, his book, A Street Without Joy, would be an excellent accompaniment to this podcast. I found following the actual shape of the war almost impossible reading it without a wall map, but it's incredible, even so, especially, like I said earlier, for feeling, and I think maybe the aimlessness of its structure points up the aimlessness of the fighting itself. I'd say do yourself a favor, get the book, and read it along with this show. When I get to a battle, read that battle, and then you'll have a better idea of both what I'm trying to talk about and what he's trying to talk about. For the moment, though, here's an attack on a post on the Black River. Not even an attack on Hoa Bin itself, but which I think is emblematic of most of the fighting that went on in the Battle of Hoa Bin. Quote, The attack came after an intensive preparation fired by the enemy's heavy mortars. Since the mortars were firing from a defilated position, they were, of course, impervious to the counter-battery fire of the French artillery and out of range of the French mortars on the other side of the river. After a preparation of about 40 minutes, enemy fire concentrated on the southern strongpoint, and at 10.10 at night, shrill screams of Tian Len, Tian Len, forward, were heard as enemy infantry threw itself across the barbed wire and the minefields without regard to losses, which, under the concentrated fire of the French automatic weapons, were murderous. One quote-unquote human wave attack after another was smashed by French defensive fires, supplemented by the artillery batteries from the east bank of the river now firing directly into the barbed wire of the French positions. 
By 1140, it was obvious that the southern strongpoint could no longer be held. The barbed wire entanglements, now covered with a carpet of enemy bodies, had become totally useless as a hindrance. Most of the emplacements for automatic weapons had been blasted to bits by enemy mortars, and the surviving Moroccans were rapidly running out of ammunition. At 1.15, the commander of Tuvay ordered the last survivors of the southern strongpoint to cross the bridge to the northern position. But the northern strongpoint was to be given no respite. At 0300, five battalions threw themselves against the 200-odd men of Tuvay. The tanks of the armored platoon stationed at the position, guns depressed to minimum elevation, fired into the screaming human clusters crawling over the parapets into the fort, their heavy treads crushing heads, limbs, and chests by the dozens as they slowly moved like chained elephants in the little open space left in the post. But soon they too were submerged by the seemingly never-ending human wave, with scores of hands clawing at their turret hatches trying to pry them open, stuffing incendiary hand grenades into their cannon, firing Tommy gun bursts into their driving slits, finally destroying them with point-blank bazooka bursts, which lit up their hulls with the sizzling of white-hot metal. The Swedish smell of searing flesh rose in the air. All the five tank crews died to the last man, roasted alive in their vehicles. But time had also run out for the rest of the garrison at Tuvay. With their backs to the Black River, many of the survivors rolled down the steep embankment into the water and then waded or swam across towards a small island in the river for a last stand. But the communists appeared satisfied with their victory. As the morning came, heavy silence reigned over Tuvay, and Moroccan patrols slipped off the island back into the post. They found it deserted of enemy fighters and stripped of all weapons. But the enemy had also left behind more than 400 bodies." Unquote. This kind of fighting must have seemed monstrous to the French, and it might seem monstrous to us now. But in the first place, Jap was using the resources he had, men, to counter the advantages of the French. And in the second, as long as his troops weren't being compelled by force to participate, Jap's tactics violated none of the rules of war, while the French bombings and napalmings of villages certainly did. The RC-6 presented the same problems as the Black River, with Fall saying that, quote, the whole 25-mile stretch had now become one vast cavalry, finally absorbing 12 battalions of infantry and three artillery groups, not to speak of hundreds of fighter-bomber and aerial supply missions, unquote. The battle, the so-called meat grinder, the so-called hell of Hoabin, would go on for months yet, but Delatra was out of time. The general left for Paris on 19 November, ostensibly to attend meetings, but in fact to receive medical attention. The British novelist Graham Greene, present at the Going Away Party, said that, quote, the changes were startling, unquote, compared to the man he'd first met. From Logoval, quote, Delatra was an altered man, weary and morose, his rhetoric of hope wearing painfully thin. Even some of his subordinates criticized him, Greene went on, tired as they were of his constant references to his own loss. Others had sacrificed their sons too, and had not been able to fly the bodies home for a Paris funeral, unquote, and unquote. Delatre flew back to France and continued deteriorating through two different major surgeries seeking to excise his cancer. He worsened and began to slip in and out of consciousness in early January, telling General Valouy, who attended him in hospital, that, quote, there is only one thing that upsets me. I have never completely understood Indochina, unquote. In his last moment of consciousness, two days before his death, Delatre asked, where is Bernard? He died on the 11th. This was the end of Delatre's year, known as such in French histories of the war. Logoval says that he'd shown the power and the limits of an individual's ability to affect both peace and war. His decisive leadership changed the tone of the conflict for the troops and might well have saved the French from what would otherwise have been total defeat when Jap made his move on the Delta in the spring. But without then immediately using that position of strength to push for a negotiated end to the war, all that it did in the context of the long run was to prolong the fighting for another three years. 
Delatra worked to build up the Vietnamese National Army, and rhetorically at least, voiced support for a strengthening of the Bao Dai regime. But he discouraged any move towards real sovereignty, and he left that government as weak as he found it. Logoval contends, I think correctly, that besides the victories in the Delta, nothing Delatra did was as important as his ardent defense of the war in the United States, which left the Americans, in the wake of his death, more committed to the French effort than ever they had been before. One of the largest state funerals in the 20th century followed his passing, with hundreds of thousands of French citizens passing by his body while it lay in state lay in Valide. A tank and a massive escort of mounted troops conveyed the general from the Arc de Triomphe to Notre Dame, where the French president posthumously promoted Delatre to a Marshal of France, the first man since the First World War to hold that title. From Logoval, quote, For those who seek symbols, there were several. Charles de Gaulle, so crucial to the initial decision to reclaim Indochina for the empire after World War II, and, even though out of office by then, to wage war there, arrived alone and remained standing solitary for a long time before the coffin. General Eisenhower, soon to begin his campaign for President of the United States, and destined to face his own momentous decisions concerning war and peace in Vietnam, was one of the pallbearers as the casket was conveyed on a gun carriage from the cathedral through the silent, crowded streets back to the Place de Invalide. And there was, finally, this. On January 17th, the funeral cortege proceeded slowly from Paris to Versailles, Chartres, and Samur, and on to Moyeran and Pered, where the coffin was placed in a grave next to that of Bernard, the only son in the shade of two trees. A nearby windmill was made into a memorial chapel to perpetuate the memory of the father and the son who, the citation said, gave their all for France. end of our fifth episode in this series, folks. And this, apologies guys, is a PSA right in the middle of the outro. You can hear that the audio is less than ideal, but inasmuch as it's in my power to do anything, it's what I'm going to do. You may all know that the official policy of the U.S. government is, right now, to separate children from their families as they come over the border. That's only one facet of a sea change in our policy in the South. First, the justification for these separations is that the people coming over are committing crimes. That's wrong on a few fronts. First, illegal entry into the United States is a misdemeanor, not a crime. Second, the people being separated are, by and large, not any old immigrants, but political refugees, people legally seeking asylum in the United States. And third, Customs and Border Patrol and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, CBP and ICE, respectively housed under the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, are doing everything that they can to keep people from crossing the border legally at legal entry points to seek that asylum. You may know that ICE and CBP are allowed to operate outside of normal constitutional bounds within 100 miles of a border or an entry point, a territory that includes two out of every three United States citizens, that they could ignore the Fourth Amendment and check papers. You may know that ICE and CBP officers are posing as regular police to gain illegal entry into houses, churches, and businesses. You may know that the Trump administration has hugely increased the size of those agencies, even though they have historically had problems hiring people who are not racist, 
unbalanced, or totally unfit. You may also know that they've waived virtually all requirements in order to swell those ranks with the racist, unbalanced, and totally unfit. You may also know that the U.S. government, per an article just published in The New Yorker, has no plans to reunite these families once they've been processed and no way to do so. You may know that the centers that these children are being housed in are by and large private, by and large being run for profit, and that they are by and large wholly inadequate, consisting of space blankets, floors, and chain-link fences. You may also be aware, even if you're not a parent, that there is no humane way to separate a young child from its parents. In the typical manner of this administration, likewise, CBP and ICE have made no provision for the care of these children. Those that are lucky are housed with older kids who already have experience changing diapers and feeding babies and toddlers. Those that are not, well, you can imagine. You may know all of that. We have, over the first year and a half of this presidency, often asked ourselves if we've reached the moment that Martin Niemöller remembered with his poem, quote, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. You may not have thought that the Muslim ban was that first moment. You may not have thought that the Trump administration canceling DACA or beginning deportations of dreamers was the first moment. You may not have thought that the establishment of the voice office under DHS meant to drum up anti-immigrant sentiment was that moment. You may well not have thought that sending troops to the border or housing asylees in prisons or selling massive contracts to private prison companies to house immigrants was that moment. What we have on our hands now are not temporary housing, are not prisons, are not detention centers. What these are, what they would be called by ourselves and our press, were they in any other country, are concentration camps. I talked at length in the Iran and Guatemala episodes about older folks that I knew who wondered what responsibility they might have borne for U.S. actions back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, what they might have done and what they failed to do. Well, this is a moment that you will remember when you're older and grayer, when you're looking back over your life, when you're wondering if you spent it well. You may not be a Muslim or an immigrant. You may not have kids or know the pain of being separated from them. You may not know anyone of another race. You may not have experienced domestic violence or the terror of a gang-ravaged homeland. You may never have had to flee anywhere or fear for your life at any moment. But what you are is better than this. And what you can do is get in touch with your church, your synagogue, your mosque. You can look up Indivisible, call your college, call your congresspeople. You can get out in the street right now, today. Or you can wonder when it's going to be your turn. I might have said at some point, like for example this time at the end of the fourth episode, that we'd make it all the way up to the opening of Tian Bien Phu. Thing is, I've got a slightly shorter week this week because a good friend from college is coming into town, and by the time I finished this section we just heard, I realized that I was less than halfway through my outline, meaning that if I kept it going, we'd be looking at a real Dan Carlin epic, a five or more hour episode, and I'd be working the whole time my friend was here. So, in the interest of what's turned out to be possible, we're cutting it off right here. 
The good news is that Vietnam 6 is going to come out next Monday, right after this show, so you'll have more than enough podcasts to chew on, I think. After that, it's one on Dien Bien Phu, hopefully short, and we might well make it into the early days of the American War before I matriculate in Ann Arbor. I've also been doing what I can to work in some future stuff, like the Fitzgerald quotes from this episode and some more from her next episode, into these earlier shows, so that we can cover some of what I won't get to before I don't get to it, as it were. Thanks for sticking with me through all of this, guys. It never quite got as big as we'd hoped, and it never quite brought in enough to make a living out of it, but I'd have a hard time saying I'd have rather done anything these past two years differently. Come say hi on the internet before there's nothing to say hi about. Rate, review, subscribe, make one last big push for me and SFD. Alright, that's all for now. Next show, next week, it's the Korean War, Eisenhower, Dulles, and, no fooling, a walk right up to the fatal gates of Dien Bien Phu. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.